Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, que passe, mi amigos, shalom, namaste, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, Wendell's World in Sports. With yours truly, Wendell Wallace is the most thought-provoking, entertaining podcast, sports talk podcast that you can listen to. I talk about the NFL, I talk about college football, I talk about the NBA, I talk about college basketball, I talk about the loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas, I talk about UFC, MMA, AEW, WWE, and sometimes I just might go ahead and talk about what else is happening in the world, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy. The man who brings it with the plan. Wendell's World in Sports. Download, rate, review, and enjoy anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roy, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everybody is doing fantastic. Shalom, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa, namaste. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Back from a week in Mesquite, Nevada. Substituting up there. Had a wonderful time. Had a fabulous time. Learned some things. Learned a lot. Continued to grow. Even from the 10th graders up there. Always teaching me something. Hopefully I taught them something. In terms of moving this society forward. And as I always say. Are you doing your part? You're listening to this podcast, right? You know at the beginning what I'm always going to say. Are you doing what needs to be done to make your world, to make your block, to make your region, to make your county, to make your state, to make your neighborhood, to make your place a better place to be through listening, learning, understanding, loving, harmonizing, respecting each and every one, despite the difference of skin color, despite the background, despite the financial difference, despite the loving of another God, despite the political affiliation, despite all of those things, if that person has love in their heart and everything, are you doing what you need to do to make sure that you spread that love, you spread that education, you spread that knowledge, you spread that harmony, you spread everything that needs to be spread, not for us, my generation, your generation, the other generations before and after us, Way too late for that nonsense before your children and their children and their children. Unity, love, a utopian society where everybody is judged on their character, not by their skin tone or who they worship or who they love. Let's hope that when we're long gone, we started that foundation to where our children's 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 live in a world where that is just an everyday thing. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us before I start the podcast. I just want to give my prayers and my thoughts, and my remembrance, and my condolences. This is around the same time, um, depending upon when you listen to this podcast, 20 years ago, September 11th, 2001, the attack on this country. And the 20 years since then, we have not learned anything from what happened from that attack. We have not gained any type of uh, unity. We have not gained any type of education from that 
tragedy. We still have politicians. We still have people who are pieces of garbage. We still have governors and lieutenant governors and everything else still playing racial politics, still playing cultural wars, still using those types of tragedies to move the society farther apart, to solidify an agenda for them through greed, through hate, through ignorance, through stupidity. So my hope and my prayer is, as we move forward now, the 20th anniversary is that, not again, not our generation, but the younger generation. I know in this country it's hard because, like I mentioned before, certain politicians in a certain party are trying to whitewash, are trying to erase the history, the true history of this country will make it harder for those in the younger generation and younger generations that come after that to learn about this country, to grow from the mistakes that were made from this from this country and the mistakes that are continued to be made through ignorance, through hate, through oppression, through discrimination, through uh, those types of things. But hopefully, maybe, possibly, that we'll have others to educate the youth, educate those who are going to be leading this country, educate those who are going to be shaping the world as they move forward and they get to be our age and when we're no longer on this planet. Hopefully that, again, the events that happened in 9-11, that uh, we can start using this to better our country because at January 6th showed, we learned absolutely nothing from what happened September 11th. That's what happens when you live in a country like ours where there's just multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of brainless, stupid people. So hopefully the younger generation can uh, rectify that problem moving forward. So before I go on and start talking about sports, my prayers and my thoughts and my condolences are with those whose loved ones were lost on that day, the heroes who tried to do their best to save lives um, in every way, shape, and form on that on that day in, in history in this country that uh, my thoughts and prayers and condolences are with you and hopefully that you're resting in paradise. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Also want to give a shout-out, special dedication. I'm recording this, as I mentioned before, on September 10th, which is a Friday. But uh, Thursday, September 9th, was the 80th birthday, would have been the 80th birthday of the greatest of the legendary, my musical hero, one of my musical idols, the greatest of them all, Otis Redding. He was born September 9th in Dawson, Georgia. And um, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to give my little soliloquy, my little special dedication to the greatest of them all, Otis Redding, why I hold him in such high regard, not just as a musician, but also as a human being from everything that I've read about him. I'm going to give you my thoughts and feelings about Mr. Redding at the end of the podcast. And once again, why I am such a huge, huge fan of him and such um, and someone who has influenced me in terms of who I am as a human being. Not as much as my parents and those uh, my immediate circle and those family members and such like that. But when you're speaking about historical figures, which the great Otis Redding is, I'm going to tell you why he has such a big influence along with Booker T and the MG, Steve Cropper, Doc Dunn, uh, Donald Duck Dunn, Al Jackson, Steve Cropper, and of course, Booker T. Jones. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, man, let's get into it. Let's go ahead and talk about what you downloaded this podcast for. Some S-P-O-R-T-S, some NFL. It's finally here. Ratings of the game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, highest in five years on NBC. Entertaining way to start the season. Entertaining opening game. Tampa Bay uh, started their defense of their championship 
with a 31-29 victory over the Dallas Cowboys. Ryan Suckup won it with a 36-yard field goal with two seconds remaining. The final drive, the Buccaneers went 57 yards in 11 plays for the game-winning uh, field goal. Brady to Gronkowski over the middle, played a big role in that. Tom Brady, 44 years old. I'm, I'm, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. You know what's interesting? Because Tom Brady doesn't look like this, and we always equate performance and physique when we start thinking about a man at his age doing the things that he's doing and doing them so well. Why hasn't anybody brought up the old PED argument yet when it comes to Tom Brady? Because if this was baseball, and look, baseball had that reputation, and rightfully so because of the PED use that was happening at the turn of the 21st century. But, you know, we always equate when someone is doing something abnormal in terms of fabulous play or high level of play at an advanced age, we're always saying, well, wait a minute, he's got to be doing something. He's got to be doing something. But we look at Tom Brady, he doesn't have those Popeye muscles. He doesn't have that tremendous physique. He doesn't have, you know, something where you can take a look and say, wait a minute, man, at 44, you ain't supposed to be looking like that. But then I asked a question, at 44 years old, are you supposed to be playing like that? I'm, I'm not, now, now, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not saying Tom Brady is doing PEDs. I'm not saying that at all. But in a world where, you know, we like to get clicks, in a world where, you know, we like to do the hot take, in a world where, you know, we want to be mentioned on other shows and talked about on the internet and face cheat and Instabook and, you know, Insta TikTok and all this kind of stuff. We, you know, some jackass might say some shit like that to be relevant. Like, oh, you know, Tom Brady, this, that, and the other. As we know, you know, you can, you, you don't have to look like Adonis to uh, be using PEDs. And you take a look at Brady and his numbers and Chris Collinsworth uh, in the podcast, excuse me, uh, in the game last night, he was talking about the release, uh, release uh, of, of Tom Brady, you know, the uh, the ball release or whatever. It's, it's faster now than it was uh, when he was in his early 30s or some nonsense, nonsense like that. I'm surprised someone hasn't gotten to the, hmm, gee, how about that? I wonder what Tom Brady, I wonder what TB12 is all about. Yeah, I wonder exactly what is he putting in those avocado smoothies for him to be doing that kind of stuff. Hmm, interesting. Something tells me if LeBron at 44 was doing something like that, that there'd be a couple of commentators on the on the TVs and on the blogs and on the uh, social media folks that would be uh, posting like, yeah, yeah, suspicious, very suspicious. But Tom Brady just continues to be the man. Tom Brady continues to be uh, a guy who, even at this advanced age, starting off the first game and just taking into account this first game, is a quarterback who, yeah, you keep it close, we'll win the game. And that's speaking about playing against the elite, that's playing against the Cowboys, that's playing against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and that's playing anywhere, as far as teams are concerned, in between the best and the worst. So it's just Tampa Bay, just with Tom Brady to start the uh, season, continues to uh, roll on where they left off in the Super Bowl with their victory over the Kansas City used to be champions. And uh, good game. It was an entertaining game. I don't know if it was the, I don't know if it was a, high level, this is what it's going to take to win the Super Bowl type of game. But this is, again, the first game on a Thursday. Both the Cowboys and the Buccaneers, I'm going to go on the assumption, are going to get better as the season goes along, which, if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, that's a good thing because there were a lot of positives taken from that game. And the biggest positive is, is of course, the return of Dak Prescott. 11, what, 11 months after um, having his ankle and foot go in the opposite direction for him to come back and do what he did. 
in his first game back in that uh, period of time, that absence that he had in those days that he missed to come back off that uh, surgery, didn't participate as far as playing in any preseason games and still dealing with a shoulder uh, shoulder injury for him to come back and play like he did. Impressive. So you're going to go on the assumption that Dak Prescott is only going to get better. So there was a lot of good things to take away from last night's game. The Cowboys did take a lead at 29-28 with 124 to go after a 48-yard field goal was made by Greg Zerline. But, uh, you know, I will say this. And again, this is week one. And again, as, as, as I've told you in podcasts, after podcasts, after podcasts, when speaking about the NFL, especially early in the season, especially when you're speaking about preseason, I pay, I pay no attention to preseason games. I don't. I barely watch preseason games. I don't take anything good or bad in the preseason games. I don't watch a preseason game and then deduce that, oh, well, this team is looks like it's going to be uh, able to win the Super Bowl. Or, well, this team, I don't think it's going to be able to win a game. I, I, I just don't pay any attention to that stuff. And you've heard me say this ad nauseum time and time again when speaking about the NFL. I'm using the first four to six weeks of starting to build, starting to uh, put together, starting to uh, build that foundation as far as a team that's going to be able to compete for a championship, compete for the division title, or is it going to be harder for them to get there? Building, building, not making the final assumption at the end of September or October or even November. This is a week-to-week-to-week proposition. Win, not getting too high. Lose, I'm not getting too low. They win three games in a row. That goes for anybody. That goes from the team that's supposed to be favored to win the championship this year and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the Kansas City Champions or the Buffalo Bills or the Green Bay Packers. I'm taking those teams into account in terms of when I'm deducing how well they're going to be, how great of a presence they have to be in the championship game. I'm taking the same measure of responsibility in choosing my thoughts and opinions about them as the season goes on as I am about the Detroit Lions or the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Houston Texans, which means that if Jacksonville or Houston goes on a three or four game losing streak at the first four or five or six or seven games of the season, I'm just not going to sit there and go, oh, they're the worst team by far. They're not going to be able to win a game. This game, this team is going to be a disaster and blah, blah, blah. And the same thing with the... um. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Green Bay Packers, Buffalo Bills on the other side of the spectrum. They go off and start winning five, six, seven games in a row. I'm just not going to say, well, book it. Book that. Uh, book those guys for the uh, championship game. Book those guys to be Super Bowl contenders. Book those guys to win the Super Bowl. There's so much football to be played, and week after week, it's almost a season in itself. And just like life in terms of success and failure, in terms of being rich and poor, being in a penthouse, in a mansion, to being homeless and begging for food on the street, just like in life, in pro football, man, you can be Super Bowl contenders one play and then be in a world of hurt, in a world of trouble the next play. Injuries, and now we have to deal with COVID. You never know. So when I'm speaking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and I'm speaking about the Dallas Cowboys this week and later on in the podcast, I'll be talking about the other games that I'm really interested in those things. I'm just taking it on a week-by-week basis, man. I live my life minute-by-minute-by-minute-by-minute, and Lord, I keep holding on. And I think in the NFL, that's the same damn thing you got to do. Play-by-play-by-play-by-play. First and 10, week 14, you're... 
Super Bowl champions, everything's great, everything's wonderful, you have a fantastic record, nobody can beat you, then second and 12, oh my gosh, our franchise quarterback just went down with an ACL tear or a broken collarbone or something like that, what the hell are we going to do now? Oh shit, so you never flipping know, man, and that's what makes, what, that makes sports, just like life. Worth uh, watching, worth participating in, and worth living, and worth and worth checking out. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. But and speaking about the game last night between Dallas and Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay did one thing that I saw last night that championship elite contending teams do. Despite Dallas outplaying them, somehow, some way, they found a way to win the game. If you, if you check, <clears throat> you didn't watch the game and you just went on the statistics alone, uh, you would think that the, the Cowboys should have won this game. I mean, Tampa Bay lost the turnover margin by three. They overcame a devastating fumble, speaking of the Buccaneers. They overcame a devastating fumble with, what, 4.52 left in the fourth quarter when Chris Godwin fumbled at the two-yard line after getting a first down with Tampa Bay up 28-36. He was going to go into the end zone. Or on the next play, Leonard Fournette was going to go into the end zone. Or Brady was going to throw a short pass to uh, Gronkowski, who was damn near unguardable all night. And that was going to uh, put the game 35-26 with under four and a half minutes remaining. That would all intent and purposes end the game, especially the way that the defensive line was uh, pressuring the... uh, pressuring deck uh, Prescott last night so you had all that going for him Godwin fumbles Dallas picks it up moves into field goal range that was huge that was big so you take a look at this game you take a look at my thoughts and opinions and theory and statement I made about hey man what chip what um, Tampa Bay showed me was the ability to win a football game when they were supposed to lose the football game championship material Tampa Bay had six fewer first downs, four fewer third down conversions. They had 20 fewer total yards of offense, fewer passing yards, fewer rushing yards, three more penalties. They lost a time of possession by nearly 10 minutes, and they still found a way to win. Why? Because they're champions and because they've got Tom Flippin' Brady. And while his physical skills in some areas have not diminished to the point of him being a liability, something that will never diminish is his brain and his genius of playing the uh, quarterback position and his preparation and everything that he's, his experience, that's never going to change. That'll never diminish his speed and arm strength and all those things eventually will diminish it. Tom Brady lived to be 150 years old. His knowledge of the game of football and everything that goes down with it will not. So with that, you always have a great opportunity for Tampa Bay to overcome faux pas and mistakes and being outplayed and this, that, and the other on most days against most teams. So, you know, that was the lesson that, that Dallas learned. You know, that's what happens when you go against Tom Brady and the defending champions. Thank you very much. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You give um, Tom Brady and Tampa Bay more the opportunities. If they're going to give you a victory and you say, no, thank you, they're only going to ask you. They're only going to uh, give you those opportunities a couple times. They're not going to continue to do so. They're going to be like, well, if you don't want it, then we'll go ahead and win it. And that's exactly what happened last night. You're taking a look at, you know, when you're playing a team like Tampa, the defending champions led by a guy like Tom Brady, small little things, small little things add up to humongous things. 
in terms of your chances of winning a football game. An elite team is only going to give you a couple of opportunities to win. And when you do, Dallas, you better take full advantage of it. Example number one, Greg Zerline leaving four points on the table, missing a 31-yard field goal and a missed extra point from a guy who, when he was with the um, L.A. Rams, how clutch he was, how 58 yarders used to go straight through the uprights with 10 yards to spare. And now you're leaving four points on the table, unacceptable, inexcusable. Can't do that against Tom Brady. You can't go ahead and do that against Tampa Bay now that they're champions. Dallas scored 10 points off of the three Tampa Bay turnovers. Now, one of them was a Hail Mary at the end of the first half, so I get it. Can't do anything there. But after Ronald Jones, who I thought would get a lot more playing time, I thought that he was going to be one of the guys for this Tampa Bay team this season that would really step up and be uh, really improve his game. And who knows? It's only one game. We've got 16 more of these to go, so you never know. But as of this first game, Ronald Jones was uh, invisible. Well, he fumbled on his own 21-yard line. Dallas converted to a... Touchdown, Prescott, five-yard TD pass to Amari Cooper in the uh, second quarter. Made it 14-13. Ah, shit, but I forgot the missed extra fucking point. So Dallas did take advantage of that. But then after Godwin's fumble in the fourth, Dallas went on an 11-play 60-yard drive for the go-ahead TD. But no, 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 no missed opportunity. Easier said than done. I understand that when you're playing against that Tampa Bay defense with that defensive coordinator named Todd Bowles, who would... Who should get another opportunity to be head, to be a head coach? I understand it's easier for me to sit there and go, okay, well, you know, you need to go seventy something yards and score a touchdown to, uh, you know, really put the backs of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady up against that wall. But look, you're playing the Super Bowl champions, and you're playing the one of the greatest quarterbacks and one of the greatest players in pro football ever. Sitting, he sit, he's right there at that VIP table. You 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 you've got to convert. And, you know, missed opportunity, 23-yard pass play from uh, Prescott to Cooper. Was called back because of a holding penalty by Tyron Smith with 2.23 left to go. During that drive, there were two holding penalties. Uh, Connor, oh, the uh, the, the other uh, offensive lineman whose name I forgot right now from Texas, I forget. But he was called on the holding penalty. That wasn't like, you know, the death nail. But still, yet and still, Dallas kicking that field goal gave Tampa Bay too much time. The missed interception on the final drive of the game for the Buccaneers. You got to have that. Was it right to them? No. This wasn't Lewis Billups in the Super Bowl game. San Francisco versus Cincinnati. Joe Montana throwing to John Taylor. A couple of plays before that, Lewis Billups had the ball thrown by Montana. Hit him right between the one and the two and his two hands and he dropped it. A couple of plays later, John Taylor scores a touchdown. Sam Weiss is looking at the scoreboard going 16 seconds away. Bill Walsh gets his championship. Joe Montana adds to his legacy and his legend. Missed opportunities. Lewis Billups had it. You ain't going to be getting another one from someone like uh, Tom Brady. Excuse me, someone like Joe Montana in a situation like that. Going back to this game, the Dallas secondary nickelback who had an opportunity to make that uh, interception. Again, it would have been spectacular. But you're not going to be getting a better chance to make a play than that. You missed it. You lose the game. Again, one game. One game. So I'm not saying that you know anyone needs to be fired. I'm not saying anyone needs to be blamed. I'm not saying anyone needs to be uh, ridiculed or anything like that. But again, when you're playing Tampa Bay, man, every 
little opportunity. Most, most, most of the time, you better come up and make and make the most of that opportunity. You better take advantage of the gifts, the few gifts that these elite teams are going to give you. Dallas had four, four red zone opportunities. They only came away with one touchdown. Not getting it done. It's not going to win you any games. Tampa Bay had five red zone opportunities. You know how many times they scored touchdowns or scored points? Three times. 25% for Dallas in terms of successful conversion rates. 60% for for, uh, Tampa Bay. You want to know, despite the despite the um, uh, advantages that Dallas had on time of possession and first downs and all this other stuff, where, how did Tampa Bay win this football game? They took advantage of their opportunities a lot more than Dallas took care of theirs. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about the first game of the NFL season, Dallas versus Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay winning on a last-second field goal, 31-29. The real MVP of the game, though, I thought, was the uh, Tampa Bay offensive line, especially that first half. Brady was stepping up, throwing passes, wide-open lanes, passing lanes. I mean, they did a really, really fabulous job speaking about the Tampa Bay offensive line. They only uh, Brady only faced pressure on 18% of his dropbacks, and he threw the ball 50 times. So... I, you're speaking about, yep, yeah, Brady, great, this, that, and the other. But again, it goes back to the pieces around him. I thought they would be a little bit more balanced on the offense. But if you're going to uh, protect Tom Brady like that, let him throw. Let him keep on throwing, especially the first game of the season, where as of right now, this is probably the freshest freshest he's ever he's going to be this season. So why not go there and have him pass it out, have him pass it around if the line for the Buccaneers are going to be that fabulous. Brady's targets, Chris Godwin targeted 14 times, Gronkowski eight times, Antonio Brown and Leonard Fournette seven times. Here's something that's interested, interesting, and this is the reason why I was talking about the uh, targets for Tom Brady for this game. Mike Evans was only, was only targeted six times. He caught three passes for 24 yards. Mike Evans wasn't injured. I, I don't know what the defense was dictating in terms of were the Cowboys rolling so much coverage over to Mike Evans that left Antonio Brown and Chris Godwin and Gronkowski wide open? So Brady was just targeting the guys who were more all, who were more wide open, had a better opportunity to make plays. I don't know, I don't know, but that's something that's going to be interesting to look uh, look at moving forward for Tampa Bay this season. Uh, the utilization of Mike Evans, who even with Godwin and Gronkowski and Antonio Brown at the receiving position, tight end receiving positions, I would go on the assumption that uh, Mike Evans is still the number one receiver or was still the number one receiver. So we'll see how that plays out uh, moving forward. Not much balance, as I mentioned before, for either team on the offense. Offensive side of the ball, Tampa Bay threw the ball 50 times. They ran the ball 14 times. Uh, Dallas was even worse. They passed 58 times, ran the ball 14 times. Did I mention before they had uh, some guy named Ezekiel Elliott, Elliott, who's making a boatload of money in the backfield, supposedly one of the best running backs in the game? What What's going on with him, man? What's happening with him? What is going on with Ezekiel Elliott and the Dallas Cowboys and the utilization and Mike McCarthy and Kellen Moore as the offensive coordinator? 
because Dak Prescott, again, unbelievable performance. No lingering effects for Prescott. First game that he's played in 334 days after fracturing his ankle early last season. Man, on the Thursday night to start the game, again, no preseason play, was supposedly, I guess, dealing with a shoulder annoyance injury, whatever you want to say. I don't know. I'm not the uh, team doctor. I haven't checked checked it out. But coming out the first game of the season, 42 of 58, 391 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception in which C.D. Lamb dropped. Outstanding. Outstanding. Positive sign for the Cowboys. If Dak Prescott is going to come out after that long layoff and play like that, keep him upright, keep him going, and I think that we've got ourselves a guy who can really, really do some things. I'm not going to be saying MVP candidate. I'm not saying anybody's an MVP candidate after uh, week one, but man, if you're going to be building a case for a great storyline, and storylines are always helpful when you're speaking about who's going to be the MVP, Dak Prescott, the performance that he put on last night in a losing effort was uh, was quite tremendous. Dallas defense played, played a lot better than they had at any point of the season. So I think that was a, a positive. But then again, I go back to Ezekiel Elliott. 33 yards, 11 carries, the longest run of the game for him with 13 yards. So you take that 13-yard run out of the equation. My, man, my uh, man ran for 20 yards on 10 carries. That's two yards per carry. And the most, I don't know if you want to call it alarming because, again, it's only week one. But we are speaking about an, an Ezekiel Elliott who came off of a subpar season last season was the fact that down at the goal line, third down, pitch to Elliott from Prescott, he tried to juke a a, a secondary um, secondary defender and he got tackled far short of the end zone. The Elliott I knew from four, three or four or five years ago just would have trucked him and ran him, ran him over. I don't know if, you know, I want to get in better shape so I'll come in lighter or anything like that, but that, 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 that play right there was kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. Is that a uh, sign for things to come? Are we now going to be in a whole new world when it comes to Ezekiel Elliott? Because again, a couple of years ago, he just would have ran him over. There would have been no chance of that guy stopping him one-on-one. This game, it looked pretty easy. So I don't know, moving forward. You got yourself a guy in Dak Prescott, but man, I don't know how successful long-term Dallas is going to be if he's going to have to throw the ball 50-plus times, 55-plus times a game. That was crazy. That was absolutely crazy you got to establish some type of running game and i will say the same thing for tampa bay somewhere down the line man you got to somehow get a little bit more balance I'm, I'm not saying that you have to be you know 50 50 but man 14 uh, 14 rushes or you know a limited amount of rushes and then you have a 44 year old quarterback throwing it 50 times i don't know i don't know but good opening game really good opening game a lot of good things for both teams, a lot of things for both teams to uh, work on. And uh, I think for those of us who absolutely love the NFL, Aaron, and are waiting with bated breath about Sunday where we can start watching these games, it was a fantastic way to start this new 2021 NFL season.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Special dedication on what would have been his 80th birthday to the great one, my musical hero, my musical idol, the great, the legendary, the iconic Otis Redding. Man, get on down, Mr. Soulful Man. Get on down. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The 2021 NFL season is starting. Viewer's guide, unless you're a gambler or you play fantasy football or whatever, where each and every week you have something riding on a game or something like that. For me, I've told you before and I've told you before and I've told you before. I don't watch any preseason football. For Don't watch any of it. Have no interest. Got other things to do. Sit there and watch paint dry before I go ahead and watch preseason football. And yes, I do a podcast. And yes, I used to be on the radio. And yes, I used to be able to sit there and talk about preseason football and get all excited and who's going to do this and who's going to do that and how this team is going to be looking good or bad and break down the evaluations and who's going to make the team. And it's like, man, halfway through the season, I would sit there and i think about all the shit that I said in terms of uh, what these prognostications and opinions that I gave during the preseason and I would be sitting there thinking to myself I must look like some kind of a darn fool so for me look man I use again the first four to six weeks as my preseason I use the first four to six weeks to gain information about which teams are doing what what teams are doing how which teams are going to be doing great which teams have the potential to do great which teams have the potential to do poorly which teams that were supposed to be better than advertised are just that how many teams that were supposed to be playoff contenders aren't that how many teams that were supposed to be doormats all of a sudden are surprising people how many teams that the prognosticators and the scouts and those who really know the game of nfl football pick these guys to finish last pick these guys to go four and 13 pick these guys to go three and 14 pick these guys to finish last all of a sudden now they're vying for a of division title they're vying for a playoff contention where which one of these teams is going to do that which one of these teams are doing that how on earth are they doing that the first four to six weeks of the season that's what i'm formulating that's what i'm using as my foundation to move forward from week four and six to week eight and twelve and then week eight and twelve to week 14 15 16 17 and then which team at the end of week 17 is playing its best football which team at the end of week 17 or at the end of the regular season which one has the least amount of injuries which ones have the least amount of impactful injuries which ones have the easiest playoff route which ones are playing the most consistent football which ones are going to be true contenders for the NFL championships man that's what I that's what I base it on the NFL TV show as you want to call it happening every Sunday and Monday night and Thursday night. It's the best reality show ever made, man. Hollywood couldn't come up with better stories and better scripts than what the NFL puts down every single Sunday, every single Monday. And that's the same thing in basketball. That's the same thing in baseball. That's the same thing in all the sports. That's why, man, when for me, it's all about sports and it's all about documentaries. I don't give a damn about 99% reality shows. I don't give a damn about 100% of the shows the sitcoms i don't give a damn about shows that are on hulu i don't give a damn about shows that are on netflix 
I don't watch too many movies. I'll watch a Denzel Washington movie. I'll watch a Morgan Freeman movie. I'll watch an Eddie Murphy movie. I'll watch a Michael Douglas movie. I'll be moved to watch a Tom Hanks movie. But I don't deal anymore in fake fakeism. And I'm not just talking about the news. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about tia, uh, reality. I'm talking about uh, TV. I'm talking about uh, dramas. I'm talking about made-up dramas and comedies and sitcoms and such like that. I don't need that bullshit anymore. You just give me my sports. You give me my documentaries. You give me my food network, and I'm good to go. And this is one of the reasons why I say above everything else, but the possibilities if uh, really good crime and justice documentary. You're going to show me something that was to the caliber of what Netflix put down when they were talking about Richard Ramirez. Well, then I'll be a lot more interested, but especially when you're talking about football, especially when you're talking about college football in the NFL, no other TV programming that I would want to watch. And that also includes the NBA. Probably the only thing that would trump that. Sorry. Oh, I said a bad word. Oh, shit. I almost threw up. I threw up on my mouth just saying that word. The only thing that supersedes me watching football that would give me more pleasure and delight would be watching my Georgetown Hoyas basketball team play, no matter how putrid they are at the basketball squad. So, with that being said, let me explain to you one of the reasons why I love watching football, why I love watching the NFL, why I love watching sports so much, because take a look at this, man. We go through this nonsense. We go through this schism every single year in terms of power rankings come up, coming up. People come down to Vegas from all over the country, from all over the world to place their bets, to place their, place their future bets, to place their overs and unders on how many games are going to be won and who's going to be winning the Super Bowl and who's going to be the MVP and which team is going to win the division. And a lot of times, most of the time, sometimes the, the, the best teams or the most talented teams or the teams that most of the prognosticators say are going to be good are just that. They, they are. Kansas City under Patrick Mahomes, they're going to be good. They're going to be good. As long as Patrick Mahomes stay health, stays healthy and Eric Reed and Eric Bieniemy are on the same page and everything is copacetic, Kansas City, the used-to-be champions, are not falling off the cliff. They're just not going to be happening. So, yeah. That's going to be happening. That's in terms of, you can pretty much say that the Kansas City football team is going to be pretty doggone good as long as I mentioned before, they keep Patrick Mahomes upright. But when you go into the power rankings, and I got this according to NFL.com, the power rankings for the 2021 NFL season, you got the top 10 teams. You got Tampa Bay at number one, Kansas City at number two, the two Super Bowl teams from last uh, season. Buffalo number three, Green Bay number four, the two conference finalist when you're speaking about Buffalo in Green Bay the runner-ups to the conference champions Baltimore is coming in at number five the LA Rams with the addition of Matthew Stafford is supposed to be coming in strongly they're supposed to be at what one two three four five they're going to be at number five Seattle is going to be number six Cleveland the resurrection of the Browns continuing. They're at number seven to start the season this is this is interesting the next two though are really really interesting San Francisco coming in at number eight. Pittsburgh coming in at number nine. I find that really damn interesting, man. I really do. You take a look at the worst teams, the 10 worst teams, Houston, Detroit, Cincinnati, Jacksonville, the Jets, Carolina, Atlanta, Philadelphia, the New York Giants, the Las Vegas Raiders. Interesting. One thing we know for sure, one of these 10 worst teams, I don't know who it is, 
But Houston, Detroit, Cincinnati, Jacksonville, the Jets, Carolina, Atlanta, Philadelphia, the New York Giants, the Las Vegas Raiders, one of these teams is going to make the playoffs. One of these teams by week 15 or 16 are going to be vying for the playoffs. I don't know which one it is because if you take a look at these teams, I can't see Houston doing anything worth a damn, especially with Tyrod Taylor at quarterback. Deshaun Watson is not going to be playing this year as he figures out his legal actions. Detroit, Garrett, Jared Goff is going to be that guy. New coach Dan Campbell, that's going to be the team that's going to shock. Cincinnati might have the quarterback in Joe Burrow, second year coming off that uh, that uh, season-ending knee surgery. But, I mean, who else do they have? They lost A.J. Green, even though he wasn't contributing much. I don't know about them. Jacksonville is going to be starting a college coach, uh, making his first runs around the NFL, which is uh, um, uh, Urban Meyer. You're going to have a new quarterback in Trevor Lawrence. You have an offensive coordinator who right now is not really meshing with Trevor Lawrence, and look, the one game that I saw against uh, New Orleans, again, it was preseason, new gift to flip, but we're speaking about, you know, Daryl Bevel and his relationship as far as calling plays and getting comfortable on the field with the stuff that he's calling. Trevor Lawrence, a rookie out of Clemson, I mean, we don't know how that's going to go, and the offensive line did him no favors with weak protection, so we don't know the strength or weaknesses of the Jacksonville offensive line, how good or bad they're going to be. The New York Jets starting Zach Wilson, again, Glowing reviews from the preseason, but now he won't be playing the majority of snaps against second teamers and guys who are no who are no longer in the league. Now the time starts for real. Robert Slato, the head coach, new head coach, what's he gonna do? Carolina, Sam Bradford had the Sam Bradford shit. Sam Darnold had a rough preseason. I don't see how I don't know how they're gonna be able to surprise the people. Atlanta. Now, Atlanta, you have Matt Ryan, former MVP, 36 years old, backslide of his career, but at least you got a quarterback with some MVP experience. At least you got a guy with some Super Bowl playing experience. Philadelphia, Jalen Hurts, uh, New York Giants, Daniel Jones. The Las Vegas Raiders might be another one in terms of a team that might... um, a team that might surprise, Derek Carr, a couple of years ago, had a really good season. They have some weapons on the offensive end. They've got a pretty nice running back. Again, what about that defense? What are they going to do about that defense? So I just take a look at these top 10 teams. I take a look at the top, the worst teams in the league. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, which one of these teams is not going to live up to expectations by the power rankings by NFL.com? And which one of these teams are going to uh, overachieve? in terms of the NFL.com's ranking of them being the bottom 10 teams in the NFL. I don't know, man. I don't know. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us looking at the worst divisions by ranking. The worst division, of course, my NFC least, my NFC East. Dallas is ranked 19th. Interesting. Washington ranked 20th. The Giants ranked 24th. The Philadelphia Eagles, 25th. The best ranking for the the best division by rankings, the NFC West. Rams, number six. Seattle, number seven. Again, the San Francisco 49ers at number nine. Interesting. And at number 18, the Arizona Cardinals. I don't know, man. I don't know. Tampa Bay looks like the favorite, but let's just go back. We saw them play last night against the Cowboys. Let's just take a look at this, man. The 2020 preseason rankings. And we take a look at the top 10 teams. 
And beginning, you had, of course, the two Super Bowl finalists from the year before, the Champions, then the Kansas City Champions, and then the San Francisco 49ers. You had the Baltimore Ravens coming in at number three, the New Orleans Saints at number four, Drew Brees' last hurrah. Tennessee came in at number five with that defense and that running game and the emergence of Ryan Tannehill. Buffalo came in at number six. We had no idea that Josh Allen was going to explode like he did. Coming in at number seven, Dallas. Many people thought Dak Prescott, the weapons, the drafting of C.D. Lamb, Zeke Elliott was going to turn it around. The offensive line was going to get better. Lo and behold, we had no idea that Dak was going to uh, have that gruesome injury five weeks into the regular season, which lambasted, which torpedoed the season for the Cowboys. On top of that, their defense for most of the season was beyond horrendous. Green Bay Packers lived up to expectations. Seattle started off strongly, but... Their offense fell apart when their defense got stronger. So they teeter-tottered into the playoffs where they lost to the L.A. Rams. And then coming in at number 10 for the 2020 preseason rankings for last, last season were the Minnesota Vikings. So you take a look at those teams, Kansas City achieved, San Francisco underachieved, Baltimore achieved, I guess you would say, New Orleans incomplete because of the injury that Drew Brees, but at the time they were uh, living up to expectations. Tennessee underachieved. Buffalo way overachieved. Dallas underachieved. Green Bay overachieved. Seattle underachieved. Minnesota underachieved. So we take a look at these top 10 rankings every year. Again, I take a look at the rankings for 2021. Which one of these teams in the top 10 are going to overachieve? Which one of these teams in the bottom 10 are going to overachieve? And which one of these teams for the 2021 season, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, Buffalo, Green Bay, Baltimore, the Rams, Seattle, Cleveland, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, which one of these teams, when we look back at the end of the season, say, whoa, well, that team was uh, <laughs> that team was over- overrated. And then we take a look at Cincinnati, the Raiders, Philadelphia, Carolina. We're going to look at week 17 and say, damn, you know, how many people pick those guys to be doing what they're doing right now in terms of making the playoffs, in terms of being right there for the playoffs? Because remember last season, my Washington football team, the Snyder Skins, the we don't have a quarterback skins, the entire year, I said this many times on my podcast, I want the Washington football team to go 0-16. I am rooting for them to lose every single game. That's blasphemous. How can you be a fan, Wendell? That's blasphemous. That's ridiculous. That's horrible. You're no fan. You're no fan at all. What are you talking about, man? I'm the biggest fan of the Washington football team uh, that that you can find. What would be the hip-hip parade? What would be the dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie moment would be for my Washington football team to win the NFC division and then lose in the first round in the playoffs? What does that mean? We miss out our opportunity to draft ourselves a Justin Fields. We missed an opportunity to draft a generational talent like Trevor Lawrence. I'm not interested in winning divisions and having no shots at winning Super Bowls. I want fucking Super Bowls. I grew up with Joe Thiesman. I grew up with John Riggins. I grew up with the Hogs. I grew up with the Fun Bunch. I grew up with uh, Mark Rippin. I grew up with Doug Williams. I grew up with Joe, Joe Gibbs. I grew up with, uh, with with Jeff Bostick. I grew up with Charles Mann. I grew up with Dexter Manley. I grew up with those guys. I grew up watching those guys win championships. I watched those guys in the 80s be on the same level, near the same level as the other great football teams of that era, including the Joe Montana-led San Francisco 49ers, the Steve Young-led George Seifert San Francisco 49ers, even though that team was more in the 90s, but the Bill Walsh, Jerry Rice, 
uh, uh, Wendell Tyler, Roger Craig, San Francisco 49ers. I was there with the with the uh, Bill Parcells, Lawrence Taylor, Phil Sims, uh, uh, Joe Morris, New York Giants, uh, Bill Parcells in the 1980s. My Washington football team was right there. And I want to get back up to that level again. And how do you get back up to that level again, especially in today's football where you need a franchise quarterback to compete for championships unless the other pieces are around you are beyond fantastic, i.e., couple of seasons ago the San Francisco 49ers who made it to the Super Bowl and had an awesome chance to win the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo at their quarterback because of the defense and other parts of their team that were beyond awesome the play calling offensive defensive coordinator head coaches all awesome so how in the world are we going to be able to compete for Super Bowls when we've got Ryan Fitzpatrick 38 year old Ryan Fitzpatrick now being our starting quarterback in the hopes that Taylor Henneke becomes this generation's Tom Brady not going to happen. So yes, I was rooting for my Washington football team to go 0-16. If they weren't going to go 0-16, damn it, they better go 1-15. If they're not going to go 1-15, they better go 2-14. All I know is, is that I wanted that team to select either Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. And the way things panned out, hell, I would have been dancing in the streets. I would have been doing a boogaloo and a funky chicken too if we would have gotten Zach Wilson. Hell, I probably would have even been doing the kitten play if we would have got ourselves Trey Lance. But Ryan Fitzpatrick and Coach, um, you know, Coach Rivera is talking about we build around and then we get ourselves a quarterback. Take a look at this upcoming draft class. There ain't no quarterbacks out there worth a damn to be taken. For now, as of right now, surprises, surprises, always happens. But still, man, so, you know, it was like when I saw the power rankings for the 2020 season and I saw the Washington football team down near the bottom, I was like, hell yeah, baby. And when the season started, I was one mad hombre when we beat the uh, Philadelphia Eagles with Carson Wentz, who were supposed to be much better than anticipated. But, you know, as they started winning and Alex Smith came in and ruined our chances of getting ourselves a franchise quarterback, as Malcolm X's sister would say, I was, uh, shall we say, one mad Negro. So, yeah, man, it was situations where you never know what's going to happen. Halfway through the season, Dwayne Haskins was the starting quarterback in the Washington football team. Their season looked like it was going down the toilet. And then guess what? In a bad division, but yet and still, we win that division. Who knew? Who absolutely flipping knew? And if you take a look at the 2020 preseason rankings again, Kansas City, San Francisco, Baltimore, New Orleans, Tennessee, Buffalo, Dallas, Green Bay, Seattle, Minnesota. Where were the Super Bowl champions ranked at the preseason, the start last uh, season? They were 13th, speaking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The New England Patriots, who everyone thought Cam Newton was going to come in and save the day for Bill Belichick, they were ranked, their power rankings was 15th. The Cleveland Browns were ranked 19th. The Miami Dolphins were supposed to be one of the worst teams in the league. They were 26th, and of course, my Washington football team, we were 31st. Then after six weeks, guess what? Seattle, Green Bay, Kansas City, Baltimore, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, the Rams, Tennessee, New Orleans, Cleveland. Those were the top 10 after six weeks. How did those teams fare out other than Green Bay and Kansas City and Buffalo? How did the Pittsburgh Steelers fan out? How did the Tennessee Titans fan out? How did the Seattle Seahawks fan out? 
other interesting teams after week six of last season when we're sitting up there and we're prognosticating and we're we're giving all these platitudes in terms of who's going to do what during the regular season and who's going to win this division and who's going to win this conference and who's going to be the Super Bowl champion and who's going to be the Super Bowl favorites and all these types of things. After six weeks, Seattle was sitting there. I believe they only had one loss. Russell Wilson was running away with the MVP and everybody was sitting there talking about who in the hell is going to be able to beat Seattle the way these guys are playing. And on the other side, as far as the elite teams in the NFL or even in the National Football Conference, your Tampa Bay Buccaneers weren't even mentioned at that time. But they just kept plugging away, plugging away, man, plugging away. So when everything was all said and done, at the end of uh, Week 12, for instance, and on November 24th, the top 10 teams at that time, Kansas City was number two, Pittsburgh was number one. Pittsburgh on November 24th of last season was 10-0. New Orleans 8-2. Green Bay 7-3. Buffalo 7-3. Tampa 7-4. Seattle 7-3. Indianapolis 7-3. The Rams 7-3. Tennessee 7-3. Baltimore and Arizona fell out of the top 10 rankings the week before. The week before that, especially after the uh, Hale Murray pass for Arizona when they beat uh, Buffalo at the uh, at the buzzer when DeAndre Hopkins made that incredible catch, there was talk, and I was right up there yapping along with them that, hey, man, a dark horse for the MVP could be Kyler Murray. We were speaking about that. We were speaking about what's wrong with Baltimore. I think um, Lamar Jackson at that time, had caught COVID, so he was missing games, and it looked like Baltimore's season was unraveling, and it looked like Pittsburgh, despite having some close calls, that they were the creme de la creme in terms of the NFL was concerned. Washington at that time was 3-7 and seven and ranked 29. No one was talking about those guys competing for the NFC East title. This is a situation where I say over and over and over and over again, when you take a look at the final rankings of the 2020 regular season, Kansas City, Green Bay, Buffalo, New Orleans, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Seattle, Tampa Bay finally getting in there, Tennessee, Cleveland, and then Tampa Bay runs the table all on the road to win themselves the Super Bowl. How in the hell, I'm not going to do it, how in the hell are you going to sit here on September 9th, special dedication, 80th birthday of Otis Redding, the great one, how in the world on September 9th are you going to sit there and try to explain to me this season Who's your top 10? Who's your divisional winners? Who is your conference winners? Who's going to be the MVP? Yeah, right now, without question, without doubt, without argument, Tampa Bay looks awesome. Tampa Bay looks great. Tampa Bay has everybody coming back. Tampa Bay has Tom Brady. Tampa Bay has both coordinators and head coaches coming back. Tampa Bay now had an entire offseason to get acclimated to one another, build chemistry with one another, have a training camp, have a full normal training camp together. So if they're going to be winning the Super Bowl last season, just think how more potent they're going to be this season now that Leonard Fournette's going to have an entire offseason training camp with the team. Antonio Brown had an entire training camp and offseason with the team. Rob Gronkowski had an entire offseason and training camp with the team. How is this team going to be beat? How is Kansas City going to be beat? How is Green Bay with the 
last ride for Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. How in the world are they going to be beat? After the season that Josh Allen had, how is Buffalo going to be beat? How, we, we, we talk about this all the time, but then again, I keep saying, this is going to be a situation where you're going to be surprised when a team loses. I just don't know which one it is because, again, we can play the what-if scenario. We can play glass half full, glass half empty all we want to. There's negatives and positives, starting off with the fact that injuries, man. I mean, New Orleans was one of the favorites to win the Super Bowl late into the season until what? Drew Brees got injured. And once Drew Brees got injured, sayonara. Kansas City looked like a strong contender to repeat as champions. Guess what? Their offensive linemen went down. And at the time, we were like, ah, no big deal offensive linemen because we're so focused on the skill players because being ignorant in terms of the everyday, in terms of the inside football, I mean, we don't know the true degree of importance and responsibility that a left guard has or a right tackle has or, or, or one of those situations. I mean, we can see for ourselves, we could be ignorant and kind of give a pretty good estimation of a quarterback or a running back or a wide receiver or something like that. But most or a lot of football fans, sports fans, betters, gamblers, fantasy football players, they can't break down the responsibilities and the techniques and the importance of a center or a guard or a tackle. So when Kansas City started having their offensive linemen fall like you know, fall like flies during their playoff run, it was like, well, no big big fucking deal. They've got Patrick Mahomes. As long as Patrick Mahomes is out there, then everything else will be, you know, Smooth sailing. Anything that you want from me is mine to recognize. But when they got into that Super Bowl and then they faced that Tampa Bay front four, they were decimated, they were destroyed, they were embarrassed, and they were runner-ups. So who knows, man? Patrick Mahomes could get injured. We don't know. And now we have to also factor in the fact that COVID is might rear its ugly head. We just heard Tom Brady a couple of days ago or a little while ago speaking about that he had... Uh, symptoms, mild symptoms of COVID-19. What happens if another important player on the team, what happened to Patrick Mahomes? God forbid, I'm not I'm not hoping or praying or wanting anybody to get COVID-19, but this, these are the facts of life. And don't call me Gary Coleman, what you talking about, Willis. These are situations that are going to come to the forefront. You, you hope that it doesn't, but you know, what would be the impact of an important member of an offense or a defense being absent for an important game. If you're at Baltimore or if you're Seattle or hell, we're all ignorant. We're all wrong. We all get it wrong. And all of a sudden Las Vegas is challenging Kansas city for the AFC West. If Denver is challenging Kansas city for the AFC West, that the New York jets are in a playoff race. If the New York giants or the, Detroit Lions are in a playoff race. Who knows, man? That's the beauty of the sport. So for me, I leave that shit alone. Now, from week to week, week one, all the way till the end of the season, yeah, I'm going to sit there and give you my, I think this team is that, and I think this team is this, but I'm going to temper my long-term thoughts and opinions and what I think about, and this is what they're going to do, and I'm I'm just going to take this shit one week at a time. If one team starts off 4-0, I'm not going to be sitting there talking about, oh, shit, watch out now, hold on now, this team looks for real now, this team looks beatable now, or unbeatable now, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go there. If it's, I don't give a damn who it is. I don't care, I don't care what team it is. And if 
a team starts off 0-4 outside of maybe Jacksonville, I'm not writing them off. I will not write them off. Because for those who wrote off the Washington football team of doing anything positive when they were sitting there 3-7 and on November 24th, as my man Kumo D said, how do you like me now? And as my man Dave Chappelle said, biatch. So that's the key, man. That's how I watch my football games. That's how I devour my football. It works for me. It uh, makes it enjoyable for me. I don't gamble. I don't have a fantasy football team. I know nothing about fantasy football. Have no interest in fantasy football. That doesn't make me better than anybody else. That's just that's just me being me. But uh, that's how I enjoy my football games. So for week one, week two, week three, week four, week five, week six, Hook me up, talk to me in mid-October before I maybe give my first little, hmm, going past a couple of weeks, this team could be interesting. Hmm, this team after six games, all of a sudden is sitting sitting here four and two when everybody thought they'd be two and four and one and five. Hmm, hmm, interesting. Before I start, you know, saying yay or nay on what they're going to be doing long-term, I'm going to be watching these first four to six weeks. And as I mentioned before, kicking back, relax, enjoying enjoying my Sunday, and watching me some NFL football. They call this Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell Wallace, that's my name. They call this podcast Wendell's World in Sports. And talking sports, that is my game. But people just don't understand now what makes Wendell Wallace feel so blue. They say this is Wendell's World in Sports because I want someone to listen just like you. The greatest of them all. That wasn't the greatest of them all. Unless you're saying that was the greatest of them all in terms of being bad. But the greatest... Special dedication related 80th birthday would have been 80 years old to the greatest of them all. The one and only Otis Redding. May he rest in paradise and may he still be jamming. I'm just dying to figure out. That's probably a poor choice of words. I cannot wait. Well, that's also a poor choice of words. When I get to heaven, if I'm lucky enough, ooh, I cannot, I cannot wait to go see an Otis Redding concert and hear what type of music he's putting down right now, man. Whenever, whenever I get to the pearly gates and they let me in. And as I mentioned before, after I say what's up to my grandparents and get reunited with them and some other things, man, let me go see a notice reading concert, but no rush. I got eternity. So I can uh, take my time. Wendell's world and sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us real quickly. I just want to give a real quick story. I was uh, listening to this song in class today, near the end of class. I had it on the YouTube, so it was one of the concerts that he was doing, doing, and he was playing I Can't Turn You Loose, the music, the song that you heard earlier on in my podcast, and one of my favorite students, let's just call her Jane Doe, because I don't want to get in trouble, I said, Jane, come up here. Now, you know, sometimes I substitute and I have to cover PE 
in the PE class that I cover. I know that you're in there, and I know you're never dressed, and I don't get too upset or bent over backwards about it because you participate and you don't cause any problems. And when you're dealing with 40 kids and you're trying to keep the kids somewhere close in the proximity so they don't duck out and skip class or the boyfriend doesn't get with the girlfriend and they don't go into the uh, dark ends of the uh, gym and start saying hello to each other and those type of things. So the fact that I can keep a watchful eye on those who are going to try to do that shit and, you know, you do what you're supposed to be doing, I'm not going to give you any flack for not dressing out. But I will say this. If you can tell me who this guy is, if you can tell me the name of this legend, the name of this greatest of them all, I will not only let you not dress out when I cover a PE class, I will also go ahead and let you leave 15 minutes early for a nutrition break. I will let you go ahead. You can go and relax and this, that, and the other. And of course she got excited. And when I showed her Otis Redding, she was like, huh, who? Don't blame yourself. Blame your parents. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what's happening in the world of sports. I'm just going to be taking a quick look at week one of the NFL season. Of course, I spoke already about Tampa Bay and the Dallas game, but uh, each game when you're speaking about uh, week one is uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. When you're speaking of the early games where you have Philadelphia at Atlanta, Buffalo is going to be hosting Pittsburgh, Minnesota at Cincinnati, San Francisco, the 49ers at Detroit, Arizona at Tennessee, Seattle at Indianapolis, and then the Chargers at my Washington Snyderskins, along with the New York Jets and Carolina Panthers and the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Houston Texans. That's going to be the early games. The late games are going to be Kansas City is going to be playing host to Cleveland, and we have Miami at New England, the beginning of the Mac Jones era in New England. Green Bay is going to be starting their last dance situation against the new look New Orleans Saints at quarterback, Denver at the New York Giants, and then the Chicago Bears and the LA Rams, and then Monday night we have the Baltimore Ravens at the Las Vegas Raiders. So again, I take a look at these games. Each game's hold interest, and I'm not a gambler. I don't play fantasy football, but there's a pretty decent storyline to all these games. I mean, we speak about Philadelphia and Atlanta, start of the Jalen Hurts era or era, whatever you want to say in Philadelphia. There's always going to be speculation that possibly Deshaun Watson could be coming over to the uh, Eagles if he is truly going to be traded before the season's over. Right now, he's not playing at all for the uh, Texans. Um, Tyrod Taylor is going to be the starter for the Texans while Watson works out all of his legal entanglements. So for Philadelphia, Hertz took all the first team reps during training camp and is the clear number one QB on the depth chart ahead of Joe Flacco and uh, Gardner Minshew, who was traded from Jacksonville. His teammates, speaking of uh, Hertz, his teammates have taken notice of his leadership work ethic and steady improvement and are buying in. So his leadership and uh, his play has already won him over the locker room, so there won't be any fractions, there won't be any uh, ill will, there won't be any cancerous type of situations going on if early on in the season Hurts is not uh, playing up to many people's expectation. How quickly can he develop chemistry with first-round uh, pick, former Heisman Trophy winner, always a Heisman Trophy winner, Devonta Smith. That'll going to be that's going to be interesting. That'll be an interesting scenario to watch from the city of brotherly love concerning their NFL football team for Atlanta. Hey man, Matt Matt Ryan is back. 
but he doesn't have Julio Jones to throw the ball to. Calvin Ridley, I assume, will be the full-time number one wide receiver. Arthur Smith is the new head coach, previously the offensive coordinator at Tennessee. I'm interested to see how he's going to use the number one draft pick of the team, Kyle Pitts. How quickly can he uh, debut and get things going? Because he's in that situation where he might be a what-if in terms of, man, the um, Falcons had an opportunity to draft Mac Jones. They had an opportunity to draft uh, Justin Fields, and instead they went with Kyle Pitts. So already he's part of that discussion in terms of what if, something that we'll be discussing, something that will be debated not only this season, but also 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So Philadelphia, Atlanta, that's going to be an interesting game for those who are fans of the Falcons, which in Atlanta is not much, and also the um, city of Philly. Philadelphia, uh, excuse me, Pittsburgh at Buffalo. Two teams, I guess you could say, what can you say about these, these two teams, But Pittsburgh and Buffalo? Going to continue to pass each other on their way to their destinations this season. Two ships passing in the night. The Buffalo Bills ship is headed toward their journey of being an elite Super Bowl contender after making it to the AFC Championship game last season, losing to the Kansas City AFC defending champions, while the Pittsburgh Steelers on their maiden voyage to Mediocreville after going 11-0 to start the season and then collapsing like they did, rebuilding, bringing in the next generation of players. Do the Steelers really rebuild or do they come close to reloading as possible? Is Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, is he going to continue to play like one of the best young receivers or one of the best quarterbacks or, or maybe the best quarterback not named Patrick Mahomes? Sorry about that, TB12. Sorry about that, A.A. Ron. Sorry about that with the Sean's sideline right now, but uh, outside of Patrick Mahomes is Josh Allen now the uh, best quarterback in the NFL and is going to have that moniker for years to come. Last season, he threw for over 4,500 yards, 37 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, completion percentage near 70 after the first couple of years not even coming close. Signed a six-year extension with the Bills worth $258 million. Stephon Diggs established himself as a legitimate number one threat at the wide receiver position at the Last time that the uh, Bills played the Steelers, Diggs torched the uh, torched Pittsburgh for 10 catches, 130 yards, and a Sunday night victory as the Steelers continued to uh, go down the drain in terms of their uh, impact on winning a Super Bowl is concerned. Buffalo, are they true contenders? Or has a team maybe like the uh, Cleveland Browns with Baker Mayfield having something to prove this year as he's going to be looking to maybe get that nice, steep, rich contract extension. Is he going to be next in terms of, yeah, and the Cleveland Browns being true elite contenders, being the biggest rival this season and maybe for the next couple of years to the Kansas City defending AFC champions. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Buffalo, Pittsburgh. Let me ask you a question, man. How good, bad, average is Pittsburgh right now? Because I have no idea. I'm seeing this stuff about they're in the top 10. I'm seeing some power rankings that they're closer to number 20 and instead of number 10. They're all over the place, and I have no idea. How much should we take into account? Well, they're the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, when was the last time they stuck out loud, huh? Come on now. You know the Steelers. This is 
This is one of the most stable, consistent franchises in all the pro sports. You really expect them to fall off the grid? You really expect them to go something ridiculous like 5-12 and 12 or 6-11 and 11 or something like that? Well, I don't know, man. Number one, again, they started last season 11-0 and 0 before losing five of their last six. Is that a harbinger for something to come to continue? Ben Roethlisberger, I mean, he started off pretty well, but he very quickly faded down the stretch. He looked old. He looked beat up. He looked immobile. He looked like Peyton Manning his last year with the uh, Denver Broncos. And now Roethlisberger is going to come back damn near 40 years old and try to uh, improve on last season. Maybe he will, but I don't know. And we're also speaking about 17 games. I don't know. And you're going to be having Roethlisberger. I mean, how much responsibility is he going to have with a running game that's going to be featuring Najee Harris, great, but he's a rookie. I don't know. And if you're going to be asking Roethlisberger to have the responsibility of a number one franchise elite quarterback, which he's been the last 15, 16 years of his career, as immobile as he is, as prone to him getting injured, he's going to be doing that now with a revamped offensive line. You're going to be asking him to... I wouldn't say carry the offense, but have a big responsibility in the success of the offense. I don't know. Then then let's just throw in football power index projects that the Steelers are going to face the second toughest schedule in football. I don't know. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to watch this. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about week one of the NFL. Minnesota, Cincinnati, two coaches that need realistic success to keep their employment as head coaches of the team. Cincinnati rebuilding continues. You know, it's been six years since Cincinnati had a winning season. Everybody used to laugh and clown Marvin Lewis, right? Oh, yeah, the guy never wins in the uh, playoffs. Well, at least he gets the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the more wretched, one of the more cheap franchises over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, Got them to the playoffs on a consecutive basis. Been three years since they've won their season opener. Six years, as I mentioned before, since they've had a winning winning season. And on Sunday, when they play against Minnesota, only seven of the 22 players who started last season are expected to be in the lineup again for uh, this season to start the game. Nearly half of the players, 22 of 46, who saw action in that finale of the 2020 season, including eight starters, are not on Cincinnati's current 53-man roster, which means... Hey, man, I'm glad to see Joe Burrow is going to be back after that injury he had against my Washington football team. But in the second year, what type of jump is he going to make? How big of a jump can he make to uh, go ahead and uh, get the Bengals started on the right track again? They, they lost A.J. Green, but now with the uh, re- young receivers that they have, T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, who they drafted out of LSU, Joe Burrow's uh, running mate when he was uh, in college for a year or two years. He has those two to throw to. He has Joe Mixon to hand it off. That's all great and done. But, you know, we are speaking about Cincinnati and we are speaking about Zach Wilson, not the uh, president of the former president of the United States, Zach Wilson, but the Zach Wilson who should be starting the season on the hot seat. Now, I don't know what his contract situation is. I don't know how many years he has left on his contract. I don't know. I mean, we're speaking about Cincinnati here. So I guess when you speak about Mike Brown and the 
Cincinnati Bengals in terms of hiring, firing, and doing all those type of things. I guess you could say that uh, with the money, he's considered to be um, frugal. So I don't know, you know, to say that, oh, yeah, he's on the hot seat, blah, blah, blah. But look, coming into his third season, Wilson's 6-25. and 25. He's got to do something. He's got to be better than that. I mean, wouldn't he have to win, you think? Wouldn't he? Six or seven games? Would 6-11 and 11 be able to keep his job? 7-10? and 10? Would that be able to keep his job in terms of a baseline figure? I don't know. I don't know. And when you speak about the Minnesota Vikings, again, there's a situation where Minnesota has not missed the playoffs in back-to-back years since Mike Zimmer took over when he was hired in 2010 or 2014. But last season, the team went 7-9. and nine. Defense should be better with some free agency additions, but still, I think Mike Zimmer should be on the hot seat. The Minnesota Vikings spent a lot of money, i.e. Kirk Cousins. So, I mean, look, there should be no more excuses. And with Kirk Cousins, I get now people figuring out that he's more of a game manager than he is of a franchise quarterback. You're dealing with a defensive man as a head coach, and you have a lot of your money invested in this quarterback, and the defense isn't going to be fantastic. The defense is not going to be top 10. And you have guys like Adam Thielen. You have a second-year guy like Justin Jefferson. You have one of the better running backs in the league in Dalvin Cook. Wouldn't you say if you were owning a football team or making decisions of a football team to say, hey, Mike, with all the offensive talent that we have, maybe it's time that we need to bring in someone a little bit different who might be more thinking toward offense than, say, defense? Because you're a defensive guy. So if your defense is not going to be top 10, then maybe this would be a situation where, you know, after your eighth season as a head coach, maybe we should just go in another direction. Now, overall, Zimmer is 64 and 47. He's only had two losing seasons. Both of those were seven and nine. He's never really, like, crapped the bed for a season. He's won 10 or more games three times. He's been to the playoff three times, NFC Championship game once. So if they were going to move on, it would be more of, look, we just need a new voice, more than just, you know, your typical, you stink, you can't coach this, that, and the other. Zimmer would, I go, I would assume, get another head coaching job if um, he did, if they did decide to part ways, if Minnesota does not reach expectations. And what are expectations? I would probably think the organization would be needing to see the Vikings compete with the Green Bay Packers, right? I mean, who else do you got in that division? Detroit and Chicago, who's going to be trying to break in a new uh, quarterback. So if you're Minnesota, I would say, hey, man, you got to go ahead and, and at least, you know, be within shouting distance with a couple of weeks left to go in the season with the Green Bay Packers for the NFC North title or else again, you know, we, we, we've got ourselves, maybe, maybe this relationship needs to, uh, needs to end in terms of coach, of you coaching our football team. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. We've got Indianapolis at Seattle. That's going to be tasty. Man, I'm taking a look at Indianapolis. The return of Carson Wentz in terms of what, is he going to be returning to relevance? Is he going to be the same player that, uh, we thought was going to be, you know, setting the world on fire and being one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL for years to come after he was damn near the NFL MVP back in 2017. What Carson Wentz are we getting here? I mean, was it really just, look, the people of Philadelphia drove him out, the fan base drove him out, the coaching situation wasn't right, and all he needed was to do to get back with his good buddy, Frank Reich, and the offensive coordinator at the time for Philadelphia, in which Wentz had his best offensive seasons and had his most productive offensive season is it just that 
Is that the only thing that's uh, stopping, or that's the, is that the only thing that Carson Wentz needs to get get back to where he was before? You take a look at it. You could make a strong argument. I mean, I know everyone's crapping on Carson Wentz, you know, after the 2020 season, not just for what he was as a football player, but how he handled being benched and how he wanted to be traded and all those type of things. And some of the things that were coming out in the locker room about how quickly um, Jalen Hurts went over the uh, the rah-rahs and the hip-hip hoorays and let's go in his direction when it came to him coming to the quarterback, starting quarterback position. And they seemed to like leave Carson Wentz in the dust and run over to uh, Jalen Hurtsville. And Wentz didn't handle that too, uh, too well. But everybody's, you know, shitting on him for that. But you take a look, man, 2020 and the totality of his career, that was almost more of like a fluky year. You can maybe say COVID and everything discombobulated, no fans in the stands. I mean, you can make a strong argument to say that, you know what? Hey, man, yeah, last season, 57% completion percentage. Yeah, 2,600 yards. Yeah, 16 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, held the ball too long, took too many sacks, wasn't really a great leader. Yeah, all of those things. But the seasons before that, if you take a look at 2016 to 2019, four seasons, he was completing 64% of his passes, throwing for over 3,500 yards, averaging 24 touchdowns and only nine interceptions a, a year. So so where are we going with Carson Wentz? We will find out. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Cleveland at Kansas City. Again, The team, those two teams played last season in the playoffs. For Cleveland, are they going to make that jump? They improved with the defense. Jadavian Clowney, Anthony Walker, John Johnson the third, first round draft uh, pick, Greg Newsom the second, should go ahead and help that defense. But uh, we take a look at a strong running game. We take a look at one of the best offensive lines in football. And we take a look at possibly the return of Odell Beckham and how is he going to uh, factor in and mix in and buy into uh, this being a run first type of offense with a strong offensive line but with still a talented core at wide receivers, if everyone buys in. And with all of those things lined up, it then falls upon Baker Mayfield to get it done. Does he have to be Patrick Mahomes? No. Does he have to be, as far as offensive responsibility is concerned, does he have to have the same type of responsibility that uh, Russell Wilson has? But can he be something a little bit better than just a game manager? If he can do that, I think this team that Cleveland has, again, we haven't even seen what they look like for the first week of the season. But just on paper, this is a team in Cleveland that should be very viable when it comes to contenders, not just for conference championships, but also for Super Bowl championships. We will see. We will see. Green Bay, New Orleans, the last dance with Aaron Rodgers start. Aaron Rodgers playing Phil Jackson. The uh, Green Bay Packers. uh, I don't know. Who's Jerry Reinsdorf in this equation? Who's uh, Jerry Krause in this equation? If uh, Aaron Rodgers is Jordan, I guess you would say. Who is... uh, Who is... uh, Is it Gutenhurst who's going to play Jerry Krause? I don't know, but... It'll be interesting. Green Bay has one of the elite teams in terms of talent on paper in the NFL. Packers made it to the NFC Championship game in consecutive seasons the last couple of years. Losing to San Francisco, that wasn't a big uh, that wasn't a big shock. But uh, 
losing to Tampa Bay. Hey, look, everybody wants to sit there and talk about, you know, Jordan Love and they could have done this, they could have done that. They would have gotten a little bit better, little little bit better play from uh, their secondary, and maybe Aaron Jones doesn't fall doesn't fumble the football. Uh, you know, maybe we're not having this discussion, and maybe all this is a mute point. What are they going to get from Aaron Rodgers coming off an MVP season? I don't know. So those are the those are the things that are going to be happening. Those are the games that I'm going to be interested in. Those are the games that everybody should be interested in. And again, not going to form any long-term, like, wow, let me go ahead and make this prognostication. Wow, let me go ahead and give my strong thoughts, thoughts and opinions. Let me let me get up a hot take on this one. But um, yeah, enjoyment, entertaining, football value, got my red zone. So it's going to be a nice day on Sunday for me to uh, check things out in terms of what's happening in the NFL. A lot of good storylines in week one. And regardless, man, I don't give a damn what it is. The preseason's over. The NFL season's starting. You got to be excited. You got to be rip-roaring, ready to go and watch some games from 9 a.m. starting all the way over to the end of the uh, day. I'm going to be on my couch enjoying some NFL football. Jump again! Here we go! Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, man, I was, uh, you know, college football is coming up this weekend. And uh, week one was a doozy. Week zero was pretty good. Week one was a doozy. Clemson and Georgia and some of the upsets upsets that took place. And Ohio State starting off their season against um, Minnesota on the road and you know, just some good stuff. North Carolina uh, falling to Virginia Tech. All of these things going down. Week two, going to be interesting. Um, the game that I'm going to be looking forward to in terms of saying, oh, that's interesting. It's going to be, of course, noontime. I think this game is going to be on Fox. The number 12 ranked Oregon Ducks at the number three ranked Ohio State Buckeyes. This, my friend, is going to be a huge game for not just Oregon, but also for the reputation of the Pac-12 North this season. Do you realize that Oregon was the only team from that division that won a game last week? Oregon, last week against Fresno State, they won 31-24, but at one point through the fourth quarter, they were down 24-21. So this was not a situation where Oregon, ranked number 12, Fresno State is good and this, that, and the other. Hey, man, when you're number 12, you're not supposed to be struggling at home against Fresno State. I'm sorry. But they were the only team that won from the Pac-12 North. California lost at Nevada, 22-17. Oregon State lost at Purdue, 30-21. Stanford lost on a neutral field, but close to being a home 
uh, a home opponent in Kansas State, but they were embarrassed 24-7. And then Washington State, Washington State loses to Utah State 26-23. And, of course, we have the Coupe de Gras. Of course, we have the, the Washington. Washington, 21st rank at the time, Washington Huskies, losing to 1AA Montana at home 10-7. No power. I don't care, man. I don't care. ACC had a bad weekend. Miami being embarrassed by Alabama. North Carolina losing to Virginia Tech. But damn, I'm sorry. No Power 5 conference had a worse, more embarrassing week than the Pac-12 North. Now for those guys, it's redemption time. And it's not a... Yeah, you would like to see Oregon pull off the upset against um, Ohio State. Yes, 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 yes. But damn, man. If you're going to be the number 12th ranked team in the country... You can't go out to out to Columbus and get embarrassed. I'm sorry. That's not going to be happening. If you go up against Ohio State this uh, Saturday and you play a tough game and you play a rough game and you just happen to lose, but, you know, you're competitive and everything, all right, maybe there's a little, you know, maybe there's a little A-OK at the end of this, but good God almighty, man, you can't go out there and get blown out by Ohio State, the team that's still breaking in new defense, breaking in a new quarterback and, and other things. You, you can't do that. You cannot do that. I don't care that they're the number three ranked team. I don't care if they're playing it at playing at home. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. If you're the number 12 ranked team in the country, again, you have to be competitive, especially after the way you played against Fresno State, especially the way your other brethren in the Pac-12 North played last week. Unexpected, inexcusable the way that they played. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us now for... The Ducks of Oregon, it's a game-time decision on Kayvon Thibodeau if he's going to play this week. Thibodeau was the defensive end that many people are saying it's going to be either the number one pick in this upcoming draft, 2022 draft, or he's going to be somewhere in the top three or four. He sprained his ankle last week against Fresno State, so we don't even know if he's going to play. So the defense against Ohio State, of course, for Oregon, it has to be better. I mean, allowing Fresno State, 373 yards total, 300 of them through the air. And you're going to be going up against Chris Olive and Garrett Wilson. Um, we better put that, we better tighten that up. If you're Oregon, Ohio State put up 495 yards on 48 plays against a team in Minnesota. They didn't go up against Cal Davis. They didn't go up against a Fresno State. They didn't go up against a Miami of Ohio. They didn't go up against anything like that. They were on the road to start the season on a weekday night in a hostile environment against a pretty good Big 12 team and row your boat, P.J. Fleck, and those Minnesota Golden Gophers. So 45, excuse me, 495 yards on 48 plays. Hey, man, you're speaking about the average distance of the Buckeyes' five offensive touchdowns in this game was almost 60 yards. You got to get it done. I'm going to be interested to see the consistency level on both offense and defense for Ohio State. C.J. Stroud, okay, first game under his belt. Good way to start off in terms of, as I mentioned again, he didn't start his career as a starting quarterback for Ohio State playing against a team that he was just going to be able to uh, go out there and blow out, that they were going to just win based on sheer talent alone. And because of that, by the beginning of the fourth quarter or midway through the third quarter, he was going to be sitting on the bench because they played Miami of Ohio or they played Ball State or they played Old Dominion, that that, that type of caliber of opponent. They played a really good Minnesota, not really good. They played a, 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 a very competitive 
Minnesota team on the road. Shaky first half for Stroud, but he turned things around. Now, yeah, that offensive line played well. He's got a pair of receivers that can be considered as a duo, the two best um, or the best receiving core in the country, again, with Garrett and Olive. And that defense, while was uh, mediocre, I would say, against the uh, run for Minnesota, I don't think anybody on Oregon's team is going to be comparable to uh, Abraham, the running back for Minnesota. So this would be a good opportunity for <clears throat> Ohio State to work on that. If you're Oregon, hey, man, again, control the ball, control the clock. You're going to have to get the running game going. Keep that offense off the field. Big play offense for Ohio State. But again, it's one game, a whole new squad in terms of the quarterback and such. Is that going to be the mantra for this year's team? When we take a look at Ohio State, are they going to be that big play offensive team? Or it just so happens that they were playing a Minnesota team where in this example, they uh, they uh, scored in those ways. The running back position for Ohio State is also pretty strong. So again, Ohio State is talented, inexperienced. How much of that inexperience is going to come into play when they play this upcoming Saturday against Oregon? Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Another game that I'm going to be watching. Both teams being ranked in the top 10. Iowa at Iowa State. A rivalry that has spanned 67 games with Iowa on a current five-game winning streak. Matt Campbell. Should have left when you had a chance, Matt. (laughs) Iowa opened the season by trouncing Indiana 34-6 at home. When was a Kurt Ferentz team ever ahead 31-3 by halftime? The Hawkeyes, they forced three turnovers, returned two interceptions for touchdowns all in the first half. Uh, Michael, I'm sorry, um, Indiana, I guess maybe the shine is off. Then they get this one game. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But um, we don't. I don't know what to take into that game against Iowa State for Iowa as impressive as they looked against Indiana. And then in turn, you saw how mediocre the uh, Iowa State Cyclones were sneaking and struggling for a 16 to 10 win over Northern Iowa. So, you know, we, they're going to get juice. They're going to get ready. I don't know how much I didn't watch the game. So I don't know how much Iowa State showed in terms of the game plan for, um, for, um, for, for film, for film study for Iowa. So I don't know how much they showed. I don't know what new wrinkles. I don't know what uh, things they're going to be, uh, putting in for this game, but it's going to be a game where it's going to be defense. It's going to be uh, a game where, you know, it's going to be Iowa, Iowa State. It's going to be intense. It's going to be a good game. And like I mentioned before, this is something where, hey, you know, both teams are ranked in the top 10. We're talking about possible playoff implications here. We're speaking about Iowa now that Wisconsin has faltered. We're now speaking about Iowa State, who, again, top 10 team, if they can somehow get to a championship game, a conference championship game, depending upon what happens, they could be in a position to uh, get a possibility, uh, get a uh, spot in the um, get a spot in the uh, semifinals for the college football tournament. So this is an extremely important game. This is going to be a game where both teams, the winner is going to have a nice little mark on the bedpost in terms of who they beat. Uh, this season, whether it be Iowa or Iowa State. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Washington at Michigan, taking a look at the uh, games for this week. As I mentioned before with Oregon, for Washington, c- come on, man. I mean, this is just this is just damn pride. This, I, I don't know exactly what happened 
against Montana, but um, for a week, you you should be utterly embarrassed, embarrassed. I I don't know what else is going up in Washington in terms of anything else. The Seattle Mariners doing all right, but you know this had to be at least for forty eight to seventy two hours, kind of like the "Are you fucking kidding me?" topic of the day around that region, around that beautiful city of Seattle, Washington, around that beautiful region, which includes Tacoma, which includes, uh, well, not Vancouver, but uh, which includes, well, not Bellingham either, but you get my drift. It's a you know nice little area in Washington, the Seattle, Washington area, Mercer Island, Tacoma, and those places. For 48, 72 hours, the talk was like, are you flipping kidding me? We just lost to Montana. We just lost to Montana. We just lost to one AA Montana. Are you kidding me? And we lost to them at home. What is up with the ineptitude of our offensive coordinator, whose name escapes me right now, but everywhere he's gone, we told you about this guy. At Penn State, he was a flipping disaster. They get rid of him, and all of a sudden, the offense looks so much better. A couple of other places he's been at the offensive coordinator, he stunk out the joint, and as soon as he leaves, and the other... Another offensive coordinator comes in and the team on offense looks a lot better. Why in the world is Jimmy Lakes a defensive guy? Why in the world is he going to put his offense in the hand of someone? If you take a look at his resume, you take a look at his success, has underachieved. And the proof is in the pudding right after the first game has been played when you score one touchdown at home against a one double A squad. Unacceptable. Inexcusable. So we'll see, man. We will see. A lot should be, um, there should be a lot of motivation. Not just playing Michigan, playing in the big house for Washington, but just to, uh, again, make amends for that train wreck of a game. And just like Oregon with Ohio State, winning the game for Washington over Michigan, winning the game, while, yes, you want that to happen, hey, man, you know, after what happened last week, let's just be competitive. You know, let, 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 I mean, we want we want to win the game, no question about it. But let's be competitive. I mean, let's show our fan base that, geez, man, I mean, what happened was a fluke. What happened was similar to uh, back in the day when Michigan, who was ranked in the top 10, lost to a 1AA school in Appalachian State. Remember when the field goal kicker from Michigan had his, had his field goal attempt blocked? And Appalachian State took it and ran it down. And he didn't get into the touchdown, but he got uh, close to it. He got didn't get into the end zone, but he got close to it. So, I mean, you know, Michigan rebounded and had himself a, a successful season. I mean, let, let's just use that as an example to say that, hey, we got embarrassed and we lost at home to a team that we should have beaten easily. But that doesn't mean our season's over. We can still turn things around and uh, do some things. We could lose to Montana. Well, we did lose to Montana. We lost to Montana. We could lose to Michigan. But that doesn't mean that our Rose Bowl hopes, at the very least, are dead. So, you know, these two games aren't going to be the end-all and be-all of our season. But we, we need to have a better showing than what we did last weekend. So, you know, when you turn it over three times, turn it over on downs twice, you miss a field goal and just made four of your 14 third-down attempts, against a one double A squad, as I just mentioned that before, you got to do a little bit better. For Michigan, interesting. They blew out Western Michigan 47 to 14. They rushed for 335 yards. Efficient performance from new quarterback Cade McNamara. All right, we'll see what happens. That was Western Michigan. Michigan, because of his coach, very polarizing. So if they go ahead and take care of business and are impressive against Washington, because of the stench that was left 
by that game against Montana last week, we're probably going to read into, wow, you know, Washington really stinks more than just, hey, Michigan is back if they go ahead and beat the brains out of uh, Washington as far as the football field is concerned. But still, hope will uh, spring eternal if they can do that. And depending upon what happens with Oregon in Ohio State, I mean, let's just say, for instance, that Michigan does a number and blows out uh, Washington. But then Ohio State is in a uh, ball game with Oregon. Then, you know, the Michiganders are going to sit there and be like, hey, you know what? For the first time in a while, maybe, possibly, there's a possibility that we could actually win the game, the big game between us two rivals at the end of the season. I mean, that's something, right? If you've lost, if you've been, if you've been lapped as many times as far as a football program is concerned over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, like Ohio State has done for Michigan, hey man, you can read into any little thing in terms of hope, in terms of uh, possibilities. And if Oregon, or if, if Ohio State struggles with Oregon and Michigan blows out uh, Washington, you're not going to be thinking, you're, the, the folks on ESPN and the other sports talk shows and all this type of stuff who talk about college football, they're not going to be bringing up the notion of, hey, wait a minute now. Hey, Michigan, they might be for real. Hey, Michigan, they might, you know, at least for this season, end the stranglehold of dominance that Ohio State has, not just in the Big Ten Conference, but over Michigan in the head-to-head themselves. So, you know, it's a big game for Michigan. Be, uh, be dominant. Be dominant. And we'll see where we go from there when everything is all said and done Saturday night. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You hear about this uh, Big 12 expansion. I'm going to end college football talk on this. The Big 12 expansion. Looking to add BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UFC. That's University of, South, of uh, Central Florida. That means the conference would have 12 teams, 12 members for the first time since 2010 because they had 10 members but since texas and oklahoma are going to be leaving as early as the end of the season the big 12 is going to be looking to replenish and not to uh disband their conference so those four teams speaking of byu cincinnati houston and ucf they would join baylor iowa state kansas kansas state oklahoma state tcu texas tech and west virginia to make up the big 12 conference so if Texas and Oklahoma were to leave for the SEC, I think their buyout is $78.5 million or some nonsense like that. So if there are going, if, if Texas and Oklahoma, which, which they should, I mean, if they're, if they're two lame duck teams that are looking to leave, let's just hurry up and get this over with. I mean, if you, if, if we're married and you no longer want to uh, be with me, let's just hurry up and get the divorce. I, I, I don't want you living in my house and eating my food and, and that type of stuff if we're not if we're not going to be married anymore or you're looking to uh, no longer be married. So, you know, the sooner the better. So that's what I'm thinking with Texas and Oklahoma, man. Let's just, just go ahead and get the hell out of here for uh, all intent and purposes and for a positive for everybody involved. So if Texas and Oklahoma leave after this season, the Big 12 with eight teams will remain a Power 5 conference with the ACC, the SEC, the Pac-12, and the Big Ten. So you take a look, Cincinnati, Houston, UCF are currently with the AAC. So with the AAC, if they leave, then, you know, the ACC is going to have to poach another conference. So they're looking at Boise State, and they're looking at Memphis, and they're looking at a couple of others. It's wild. It's crazy. But for the um, Big 12, 
Cincinnati, Houston, US, UCF. I tell you one thing, though. I mean, in football, drive the bus. Football pays the bills. Football are the daddies of the home. Football is what runs the uh, king's castle. In fact, football is the king that runs their castle. But basketball-wise, is there would there be a better conference than the Big 12 if they add Houston to the to that squad, Houston just to their conference, Houston who just went to the Final Four and have a great coach in Kelvin Sampson, and the fact that Houston can breathe a little bit easier because the enticement that other schools might have to say to Kelvin Sampson, hey, you know what, you've gone about a far about as far as you could with uh, this program. Why don't you go to our major conference and uh, do some things there? Now, if you put Houston that basketball squad wise into the uh, Big Twelve there would really be no reason for Kelvin Sampson to leave because, again, you would be arguably speaking about the best basketball conference in college football, in college basketball with Baylor, who just won the national championship, West Virginia with Bob Huggins. There's, they're always going to be, uh, they're always going to be, uh, they're strong. Oklahoma State has a pretty decent team. Kansas, of course, is one of the elites in college uh, basketball. So as far as a college basketball standpoint is concerned it would be strong but getting back to football still this is a really good move when you're speaking about BYU BYU with that Mormon base BYU in that beautiful stadium that they play in BYU who again has a strong following because of the 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 religious religious aspect of things they would they would travel well um you're speaking about um you know a, a BYU team that has had a history of Winning a championship, whether you think that was bogus or not in 84 when they won a championship, um, they did win one. They have Heisman Trophy winners in, well, they have a Heisman Trophy winner in um, Ty Detner. So they have a long storied history, successful history of football that's being played uh, by that school. Zach Wilson just drafted number two by the, by the New York Jets in the NFL draft. So, the success, they went 11-1 last year, so the success of BYU was not something that we can talk about 15, 20, 25 years ago. They're not, you know, this version. I mean, the, the, the BYU was not Miami. They're not Tennessee. They're not uh, one of those squads where we remember how great they were in the 80s, and now they're irrelevant for the most part compared to their success. They've been pretty consistent in terms of their excellence, in terms of their competitiveness, and concerns of their and, and, and their record is concerned. So BYU would be a really good get. Houston would be a good get for the Big 12 because you're taking a look at a situation where, look, Houston, Texas, recruiting, Right there, Houston, one of the major media markets in this country. Houston, again, at the great football that's being played. Vince Young came from Houston. A lot of great players are out of Houston. Now, the uh, football program with Dana Holgerson, I don't know how long he's going to be there, but uh, now they have a chip that they can play in terms to entice these guys uh, to stay at home, sort of like with uh, uh, Schnellenberger. When he was first the, uh, when he first became the coach, at Miami, way back in the day, his main deal was, look, we're, we are going to put a fence. We are going to put a wall around Dade County, around all of these hotbeds in our state for football, and we're going to get them. And we're going to get them all. Or we're going to get we're going to get a lot of them. We're going to get most of them. We're going to get uh, the, uh, the, a lot of the best. And that's how Miami built that powerhouse of a dynasty in the 80s. 
So if you're Houston, why can't you do the same thing in terms of, man, we've got so many great football players in this area. We don't have to get on a jet and fly anywhere. We, we, we can get in our car and we can drive two hours one way, one hour one way, half an hour another way, 45 minutes another way. And we can, just based on that, we can build ourselves a really good football team. So if you're the football coach at Houston, you're speaking about if they get rid of Dana Holgerson, if he continues to underdevelop and underachieve, you're speaking about a guy who can come in here with the plan of saying, hey, look, we're not going to, we are not letting the best football players in our area, in our district, in our county, in our region go to Texas, go to Oklahoma, go to Alabama, go to Clemson, go to Ohio State, go to Michigan. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep these guys here with the, with the plan of building a national power right here in our hometown, your homeboys, your homegirls, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, your aunties, your nieces, your cousins, they can all come out and see you play. And once they go ahead and finally build themselves a nice looking um, uh, facility up there, I think that will improve their chances along with being now part of a Power 5 conference. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Cincinnati, right there in Ohio, another hotbed for players that uh, they could get. I mean, that that's great. They've shown success with Luke Feckle uh, at the head coach of that team. And the fact that, again, you're going to be competing not just with uh, players from Ohio, plenty enough to go around. So competing with Ohio State, you don't have to get all of them. And Ohio State is a national program. So they're going to be dipping in they're going to be dipping into Texas. They're going to be dipping into California. They're going to be dipping into Florida. They're going to be dipping into Pennsylvania. They're going to be dipping into Michigan to be pulling in five starters and such. But now with Cincinnati in a power five conference, they too, they might not be able to get as many five stars or four stars as Ohio state, but they're going to be in the running for them. And they can also spread their wings into Western Pennsylvania and others. So I think that's also another really good team for the uh, Big 12 to have. And then UCF, a sleeping giant. That campus is what, 60,000 people or some nonsense like that? And it's right there in Florida, another um, hotbed for recruiting. So look, you know, television contracts and all those other things go into play when we're speaking about these decisions on which teams are going to be joining which conferences. But I think for the Big 12, to lose a Oklahoma and a Texas, I think to replenish those two squads with those four uh, right now, it really does happen. I think that would be a really, really good deal, not just for the Big 12, but also for uh, college football. And we can now start talking about possibly really moving towards a 12-team playoff now, if that if that happens now, because now you'll have more viable conferences and more teams that could be viable to uh, play in the uh, in, into the uh, play in the in the um, in the uh, playoffs for college football. I mean, now you've got four teams, and who is that every single year? It's Clemson, it's Ohio State, it's Alabama, blah 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 blah. I mean, wouldn't it be neat? Wouldn't it be interesting to have some new blood along with the elites of the elites? Wouldn't it be nice to have a team from the Pac-12? Wouldn't it be nice to have? a team for the Big uh, 12 to uh, participate in these um, in, the, in the football tournament, along with teams like a Coastal Carolina, along with those other type of teams, um, uh, maybe a Navy, an Army, maybe a, a Notre Dame and such. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have a broader uh, landscape to choose your team from? And wouldn't that be 
better for the sport itself rather than have the same old, same old every single year? Just, just asking, just inquiring, just wondering. So, yeah, man, college football continuing the move. Some interesting games this weekend. The Pac-12 is expanding. Things are uh, getting hot, bothered, and ready in college football. This is another one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love cry. This now song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. <laughs> this girl, she just took this song, but I'm still gonna do it anyway. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the program. Thank you very much for listening. Want to give my shout out. Want to give my special dedication. Want to give my thoughts and my prayers and my condolences in remembrance of September 11th, 2001, the 20th anniversary of that tra- of those tragic events that happened on that day. Special dedication and love and support and prayers for those those who lost their lives, the heroes that tried to save them, the heroes that perished in the plane crashes and the attack that was on our country, thoughts and prayers are with them. Thoughts and prayers are with their family members. Thoughts and prayers are with those who were touched in a negative way uh, through the loss of their friends or family members uh, on that tragic, awful day. I, I just hope that moving forward, that maybe not with my generation, as I mentioned before, the insurrection, the domestic terrorist attack that took place on January 6th showed that the events of September 11th for a certain amount of folks in my generation, the generation before and after, showed that those, that what happened on September 11th really didn't have an impact in terms of bringing people together, in terms of learning from each other, in terms of bringing true unity to each other, the insurrection and the idiots who are trying to placate or trying to dissuade or trying to um, play down the events of those actions and the idiots who actually believe in what they're saying. Um, it showed that, you know what, 9-11 really didn't have that much of an impact or maybe it did for 48 hours, maybe it did for even a couple of years, but when everything is all said and done, it's back to normal in terms of selfishness, in terms of ignorance, in terms of uh, just foolishness, just in terms of the racist views that this country has. But uh, hopefully again, with the insurrection, which happened January 6th and the remembrance and the continuance of education for the younger generation of what happened on September 11th, 2001. Hopefully, 
in the year 2050, in the year 2075, in the 23rd century, maybe, hopefully, that these events can have a positive impact in terms of the younger generation learning about what happening and happening. And from that show unity, show harmony, show love, show understanding, showing a willingness to learn, to listen, to respect one another, to respect others who may not look like them, respect those who might have a different skin color than them, respect those who might be from a different side of town from them, respect those who might be from a different world from them, respect those who might have a different religion than them. Hopefully for my generation, the generation before, the generation after, too late. We're too stuck in our ways of being ignorant and selfish and racist for something like that to really take place in a utopian, harmonious society that I feel that we should live in where it doesn't matter what color of your skin, doesn't matter what your political affiliation is, it doesn't matter what religion or religion you uh, worship, what God do you worship. I know in the society that I want to live in where everyone is based on who they are as a human being, not just because of stereotypes and ignorance. I know the insurrection of January 6th and the way that's been played and the way people of stupidity think one way and another way. I, I know that's past my hopes and prayers that we can move a generation to where I feel happy in terms of where we are, uh, fully happy where we are. I, I'm too old for that. I'm going to be long gone by the time something like that happens. By the time there's a society where I want to live in where it's full of nothing but unity and love and happiness. I'll be long, long gone. So it's going to be up to the children. It's going to be up to the younger generation to learn, to listen. And I think that's what they're doing. I think that's what uh, we continue to do as a society. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that even though it won't come around while I'm still living, even if I live to be, shit, 95, 100, 150 years old, but hopefully, as I mentioned before, by the time the... 23rd century rolls around that this world is still here this earth is still standing if someone can get a hold of climate change and get serious about that and start making the necessary changes for the betterment of our planet the health of our planet then hopefully we'll have a society where unity harmony exists for real wendell's world of sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us so that's my that's my soliloquy on 9-11. Also want to give a special dedication. Also want to give a special shout out to the, to the greatest, to the legend, to my musical hero, to my musical idol, the great Otis Redding, whose birthday is on September 9th. I'm recording this on a Friday night. So, so I'm recording this on the 10th. So the happy belated birthday to the greatest of them all, Otis Redding. Um, as I mentioned before, my musical hero, my musical idol, and also more than any other person outside of my family, of course, in terms of who I pay great reverence to in terms of the entertainment field, in terms of the musical field, which I am a great historian on, especially when you're speaking about old school R&B, 1960s type of music. I mean, I have my favorites like... Uh, James Brown, I have my favorites like Sam Cooke, I have my favorites of course like <clears throat> Otis Redding, I have my favorites like Sam and Dave moving into the 70s, I have my favorites of Stevie Wonder, I have my favorites of Donny Hathaway, I have my favorites of the Isley Brothers, I have my favorites of course of the Four Tops, I have my, I have my favorites of course, but in terms of the totality of who they are and who they were as people, none for me stands up to the greatest of him all, 
Otis Redding. That's why, you know, every December 10th, I always on one of my podcasts try to uh, give reverence, give remembrance to Otis Redding and both Sam, and Sam Cooke, who both uh, died uh, on December 10th, even though basically Sam Cooke died the morning of December 11th, in the early morning of December 11th when he was murdered. Um, Otis Redding, plane crash in Lake Monona, going to a gig in Madison, Wisconsin, 326, 328 in the afternoon when uh, Otis Redding, Otis Redding's plane went down with the Barquets killing everybody on board except for Ben Cauley, the trumpet player. He was the only one that survived. A great, young, talented backing band that Otis Redding had. Young guys that died in that plane crash. Speaking about 19, 20, 21 years old, Otis Redding himself <clears throat> being 26 years old. So I always speak about how great Otis Redding was and all those type of things on the day that he died. So I'm just going to flip the script and give my reverence, give my special dedications, give my thoughts and opinions about how much Otis Redding means to me, how much Otis Redding should mean to you, the thanks that you should give Otis Redding, even if you're not a fan of his music, even if you don't know anything about his music, that you should be giving a a, a special thank you. You should be giving a special dedication uh, because he was a person who played a role, not a huge role, not the main role. He wasn't the lead star, but he played a big role in the movement, in the positive of this society, in terms of where we are now. Yes, I, I just finished speaking about, and I've always you know, mentioned the fact that uh, you know, when it comes to the quote-unquote United States, there are very few things that we as a people are united in. We're not united in race. We're not united in gender equity. We're not, re we're not uh, united in any of those things. But as much as we need to improve in terms of loving each other, respecting each other, and, and, and all those type of things, we have, of course, come a long, long way from when Otis Redding was doing his thing, when Otis Redding was laying down the foundation, when Otis Redding was part of that generation who was making it possible for me, for you, regardless of skin color, regardless of gender, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of which gender you love, regardless of your religious, who you, who, who you believe is your God, Otis Redding was playing a part in making it easier for you to be who you are, to love who you are, to be respected for who you are. Again, even though we have a long, long way to go, in all of those areas, we have come we have come farther than many people probably back in the 1960s probably would have guessed. I'm quite sure if you would have asked Otis Redding and Al Jackson and Booker T. Jones and Sam Porter and I'm sorry Sam Moore and David Porter and Levi Stubbs and Abdul Fakir and uh, uh, Ronaldo Benson and Donnie Hathaway and Stevie Wonder and Barry Gordy and all these guys, if you would have asked them that. Back in those days, back in the 60s, if you would have asked those who were fighting for civil rights, if you would have asked um, the great Malcolm X, if you would have been asking uh, those folks, if you would have been asking those on the front lines and playing a role in the civil rights movement, that in the year 2008, um, some guy named Barack Hussein Obama would be president of the United States. Oh, and by the way, here's the kicker. He's black. I'm quite sure you would have gotten a lot of people at who would have been laughing and maybe some people who just would have been like, 
Well, Dr. King did say he had a dream, right? When Dr. King said he had a dream where everybody was getting together, he didn't mention anything about that dream about having a black president, right? Maybe that would have been too radical. In fact, probably in the 1960s, that was too radical. I'm quite sure maybe in 2008, just like 2021, even that's still radical for a good number of people. Too many people, too many regions, too many parts of this country for that to fathom. But it happened, and Otis Redding played a part in that. Otis Redding played a big part in that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So not only do I enjoy his music, I mean, you know, Otis Redding could have been a modern-day Larry Elder. Otis Redding could have been a modern-day Paris Bernard. Otis Redding could have been a modern-day Jason Whitlock. Otis Redding could have been a male version of Candace Owens, a coon, sellouts, those type of folks. As much as I would have hated it, I would have damn enjoyed his music. I would have loved, still loved his music. I still would have loved These Arms of Mine. I still would have loved Mr. Pitiful. I still would have loved Pain in My Heart. I still would have loved um, Old Man River. I still would have loved Dock in the Bay. I still would have loved all the Sam Cooke covers. I still would have loved My Girl. I still would have loved all the songs that he sang. I would have hated him as a human being. <laughs> I would have called him the biggest sellout and all those other things, most definitely. But just based on music alone, hell yeah, that guy would have been my guy as far as music is concerned. Again, he reaches the level for me for reverence because of the type of person that he was. A guy who didn't see color. He was he was definitely knowledgeable. He was definitely aware of his surroundings. He was definitely aware of what was happening to black folks. He was aware of those type of things, but he did not let the color of his skin, he did not let the color of his skin um, play a role in terms of how he dealt, how he formed, and how he uh, formed relationships, friendships, and such. If you were a good person, if you were going to be able to help him out, and you were a good person, then Otis Redding was going to be good for you. So that's where I'm talking about even Phil Walden, one of his best friends who was white, was talking about, hey man, you know, you're speaking about in Georgia, Otis Redding being George, being born in Dawson, Georgia, 1941, then moving to Macon, and then once he made some money moving out to Round Oak, where his family is now living, out there on, on that farm of his, that uh, Alan Walden and Phil Walden, the managers of Otis Redding, both being white, were able to uh, help him uh, get because of business dealings that they went in on. The fact that, hey, man, they said that, you know what, man, Otis Redding, I mean, you know, in in Georgia, in Macon, Georgia, in deep south Georgia, in red clay Georgia, where white folks walked around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and referred to black people as boy and nigger and all those type of things, and treated them with, with, with contempt, and treated them with disrespect, even those people had the utmost respect for Otis Redding. Not because they knew anything about his music. They didn't know a damn thing about his music. It was because of his personality, because of the way he was as a human being and the way that he was as far as treating others. Again, he wasn't no, you know, step and fetching. He wasn't no uh, Uncle Tom. He wasn't no uh, Yes Amasa, no Amasa. I mean, if you got in his face, if you riled him up, if you disrespected him in any way, he would whoop your ass and whoop your ass severely. But if you were good to him, he showed you that side in terms of, you know what? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be judging you by the content of the your character, not by the stereotype of your your skin color and what that stereotype and what those what those things bring to the table. So 
Otis Redding, that's my guy. No other, no greater example for that than the fact that of where he made his best music, where he made all of his music, where he became a legend, where he became a giant, where he became in the four years that he was prominent, the four years that he was known, the four years where he built his legacy from 1963 till 1967, the backbone, the foundation, the the, the starting point for for that, the starting point in his in his impact and his uh, dealings and his responsibility for where we are now as a society. It happened at Stack Studios. It happened at Stack Studios where the owner of Stacks was Jim Stewart, a white guy who was a banker. And he was looking, he was a, he was a fiddler player who wanted to play country and Western music. He wanted, to, he wanted to start a country and Western band. So here was a guy who was looking for a, a, a studio to buy. And the only place where he could find one, him and his sister Estelle Axon, the only place where he could find a place where he could maybe start setting up a music studio or such something like that, was in the Black Ghetto in Memphis, Tennessee, at an abandoned, rundown, dilapidated old movie theater over on 926 East Macklemore Avenue in the heart of the ghetto in Memphis, Tennessee. So here you had Jim Stewart from the other side of the tracks back in the 19th, late 1950s and early 60s in Memphis, Tennessee, where nothing was integrated. Nothing was integrated. Schools weren't integrated. Churches weren't integrated. Pools weren't integrated. Neighborhoods weren't integrated. Nothing was integrated. Nothing. You had white and you had black and you had separate and unequal. There was, there was no difference in the 1960s when Jim Stewart started this venture down in Macklemore Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee was no different than Montgomery, Alabama, than Jackson, Mississippi, than any other place where people were being killed, people were being lynched, people were being wrongly accused and jailed and murdered and such simply because of the color of your skin and simply because white folks felt it was their 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 honor, their duty, and their privilege to go ahead and kill niggers when they wanted to. Memphis, Tennessee was no different than any of them redneck places down in Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, South Carolina, and such. No difference whatsoever. So Otis Redding walked into, from Macon, Georgia, so he, he knew what was going on. He, he was, he was, his eyes and his mind and his intelligence was wide open to what was going down. So here comes Otis Redding, this man who's just bursting with soul, bursting with musical talent. Here was a guy who came in and had his career, his legendary career started on the foundation of the house band Booker T and the MGs, who just happened to be an integrated group. So you had on the bass Donald Duck Dunn, who was a white guy who was fucking awesome as a bass player, fucking awesome. You had Steve Colonel Cropper, not only a fabulous guitarist, but also a tremendous songwriter who happened to be white, both from um, both from uh, the white side of Memphis, Tennessee. Then on the other side of the track, you had Al Jackson, one of the best drummers in in, in pop or modern uh, um, music over the last 50, 60, 70 years, who was black, Al Jackson Jr. And then you had Booker T. Jones, who was highly established and highly competent and highly talented in a myriad of instruments 
whether it be the organ, whether it be the harmonica, whether it be uh, uh, horn uh, horn instruments, he was fucking awesome at all of them. And they all met at Stack Studios. They all started recording at Stack Studios. And that's where Otis Redding came in. And that's where These Arms of Mine started. Pain in My Heart started. Mr. Pitiful started. Doc of the Bay started. Can't Turn You a Loose started. Satisfaction started. My Girl started. New Day started, all of these things, all of these, uh, just one more day started, excuse me, those are the, those are the gems, those are the jewels, those are the treasures that we now have, that we can now learn from, that we can now use and better ourselves in terms of musicians are concerned, for those who are just as talented, for those who are just as hungry, for those who want to make themselves into a musician, for those who want to go into the uh, musical world, go into the musical industry, for those who want to study Otis and learn what it takes to be a great performer, learn what it takes to be a good artist, learn what it takes to be a great musician, learn what it takes to be a great singer. Uh, Integrated group, two white guys, two black guys in the heart of segregated Memphis, Tennessee was the one that was pumping out soul music, the most soulful soul music that you can think of. Motown gets a lot of credit. Motown gets a lot of accolades and like they should as being the sound of young America. Hitsville, USA. You had two white guys, two black guys from Memphis, Tennessee putting out more soul, more true soul. It might've been country, but more true soul music than Motown could ever do. And again, had nothing to do with skin color, had nothing to do with side of the track you were on, had nothing to do with any of that stuff. It all had to deal with love for each other. It all had to deal with unity. Because guess what? When Booker T. Jones and Al Jackson went back to the black neighborhood, guess what black folks were calling them? Uncle Tom's, sellouts, all them type of stuff. And when Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper went back to the white neighborhood, what do you think those neighbors were calling them? Nigger lovers, uh, all, all, all those type of, types of derogatory names. So it was truly a love for each other and a love for music. And it's like, man, I've read that story. Man, I've watched every documentary I could about Stack Studios. I've read every book, watched every video, watched every documentary over and over again about Otis Redding. And that's the one where it's like, that's the way I want to live my life. That's the type of person I want to be. That's the character what I have. Taking the traits, the good traits and everything that I got from my dad, Wendell Wallace, and my mom, Marie Wallace, and then taking all of those good things, all of those great qualities that they gave me, which was in abundance. And then, you know, applying the philosophy mixed in with Otis Redding in terms of, hey man, I'm just going to be me, I'm just going to do me, I'm going to have strength in me, I'm going to uh, be me and not let anything in terms of skin color or stereotypes or discrimination get in the way. And if someone can help me, if someone's going to be on my side, if someone's showing love and unity and understanding, then I don't give a fuck what color they are. I don't give a damn if they're gay or straight. I don't care if they're a Republican or Democrat or independent or or a socialist or whatever. I don't, I don't give a damn. I don't care if they're white or black or Asian. I don't care if they're poor or rich. I don't care because those are the type of people that are going to help me in moving my little bit of society, my little bit of world that I live in, in the right direction. Hopefully they can help me when I can meet somebody and have an impact on them to where they can want to be a better person to help move the society in the right direction, in a loving direction, in a harmonious direction, in a respectful direction. So 
special dedication and a special thank you very much for, like I said, man, one of my heroes. I've always said this before when I end this. When I die, whether it be in two minutes or two decades or five minutes or five decades, whenever the Lord calls me home, if I'm if I'm worthy, man, the first couple of things I want to do before being reunited with my dad and hopefully by then reunited with my mom and be able to meet my grandparents for the first time and meet my other family members who are already up in heaven and um, do some other things, get caught up with them. As, as soon as I get done with that, and I've got plenty of time because I'll be up there for eternity, hopefully. After that, man, it's like, hey, is there any way humanly possible if I could somehow, some way go see a concert with Otis Redding? Because, man, I'm telling you, the concert up in heaven that Otis Redding has been putting on for the last 50, 54 years, that shit must be fucking off the hook. A build that's going to have Donny Hathaway, a build that's going to have Otis Redding, Donny Hathaway, Sam Cooke, Miles Davis, uh, John Coltrane. You don't think, you, you think I'm missing that concert? And again, I'm going to be up in heaven forever, so I got plenty of time if I'm going to miss one show to see another one. But man, heaven is going to be fantastic. I get to see Ali or Frazier fight time and time again. I'm going to be able to see those mega fights between Jack Johnson and and, and Mac Jack Johnson and Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis versus Rocky Marciano for real this time. I'm going to be able to get to see uh, Willie Pep fight against... Uh, uh, you know, uh, shit, I don't know, another great boxer who died. I mean, I'm going to be, be able to see all that great stuff. I'm going to be able to see some great music with Biggie in terms of rap and some other stuff. I'm going to be able to see Gangstar up there, the guru. Man, I tell you one thing, heaven can wait, but when I get up there, man, I'm going to have me some fun, man. Heaven sounds like a really good time, so I better make sure that uh, I do the Lord's work and I do it correctly, and I think that uh, hopefully... If I continue in terms of my reverence, in terms of my education, in terms of the example that Otis Redding sent and I can follow, in terms of being a human being on top of being a great musician that he was, permeate that stuff down to me in my everyday life, in the way that I do my podcast, in the way that I substitute teach, the way that I interact with others, hopefully, 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 it'll pay off at the end. So I want to end the podcast today. Thank you very much for indulging me about the greatest 80th anniversary birthday, Otis Redding, September 9th. Whenever you're listening to this, pay homage, pay, pay reverence to him and to 9-11. So I'm going to uh, end with uh, one of his songs. This song was written by Zelma, his wife. In fact, he was on the road and Zelma was like, I was missing him so much. I think this was when he was in Europe. He was traveling with Europe, the Stax Volt uh, tour that traveled through London, England, and all throughout Europe. And uh, he was gone, I believe, for six weeks or something like that. And Zelma was uh, missing him very fiercely. So she just wrote this song or a poem. He didn't write, she didn't write a song. She wrote a poem. So when he got back home off the road, you know, he comes in and Zelma was like, I wrote, uh, I wrote a song. And Otis took it and looked at it and was like, man, you ain't no singer. And Zelma was like, well, you know, I just wrote the song. Do what you want to with it. Nothing else was said about it. Well, Otis went to West Stax, one of the marathon sessions that he had near the end of his near the end of his life because he was recorded like a mug because he had just had throat surgery and he was out of uh, action for a little bit. So when he came back, he was rip roaring, ready to go because he couldn't talk for like six weeks. So while he was at home in his farm in Bacon, he was just writing music and strumming on the guitar and doing all these things. So when he finally got the opportunity to go ahead and record, he had so many songs that he wanted to uh, record 
with Steve and Duck and Booker T and Alan, those guys that uh, they had a couple of really long marathon sessions of just, you know, one song idea and everything after the other. So that was these I've Got Dreams to Remember was one of the songs during one of those marathon sessions that uh, the great Booker T and the MGs and the awesome legendary Otis Redding put down. Beautiful song, lovely song, and of course the soulfulness of Otis Redding is second enough, second to none. Love me some Sam Cooke, love me some Aretha Franklin, love me some Levi Stubbs, love me some Anita Baker, love me some Donna ha- Donny Hathaway, love me some James Brown, even though as a human being he was eh. But uh, again, none of them topped the greatness of Otis Redding. Those guys, along with the multitude of others, if it wasn't for those guys, hey man, <laughs> some of my best friends in life some of the people who have helped me become the person that I am uh, today, who I'm proud that I got to know and they got the opportunity to help me grow as a human being wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for those guys, wasn't for Otis Redding and those guys. Barack Obama might not have been the president if it wasn't for the people of that generation, which included Otis Redding and such. So high reverence for those guys. I've got dreams to remember. The first take The alternate take, the first take, every take, awesome, fantastic, wonderful. Special dedication to the one and only, the greatest of them all. Happy anniversary, happy birthday, my hero, my musical hero, Otis Redding. These, I've got got dreams to remember. Take it easy. I've got dreams, dreams to Yeah.